May the 1st, 2020. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. Here we are on Friday getting you set up for a, a really big weekend in horse racing with a couple big races over at Oaklawn Park. So that will be sort of the focus for us today as we bring on Craig Milkowski from Timeform US to discuss the the couple stakes races over at Oaklawn Park. I'll give you some other plays at Oaklawn. We're going to recap the ESPN Last Dance documentary episodes 3 and 4. We're going to have a conversation with our buddy Tyler Herringer. He gives out a couple of uh, thoughts on the NFL draft, teams that he liked, teams that he uh, didn't like, what they did in the draft. And then we close things out. Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne, recapping WrestleMania 8 from 1992. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. We're going to get right into the Last Dance documentary about the Bulls. If you're not watching, if you're not paying attention, maybe you want to skip ahead to... uh, the racing, to the wrestling, to uh, the conversation with Tyler, because we're going to get through uh, everything that happened in Episodes 3 and 4. So Episode 3 is um, a lot about Rodman, and the the way this show is, is it, you know, it bounces back and forth, and Rodman is the guy that wants to do the dirty work. He's not worried about scoring. He is embracing the little things, and it... It's really interesting to see because he's doing it like nobody else that we've we've seen before. In 97-98, the Bulls were struggling, trying to win their third uh, consecutive championship. We know Scottie Pippen was hurt to start the season, so he's out. And they're 8-7 and seven through their first 15 games without Scottie. Dennis was just kind of going through the motions. He wasn't really motivated. And um, Michael Jordan, MJ, says that at one point Dennis got kicked out of a game. And it's interesting how MJ discusses Dennis because he says, you know, Scotty's not around and, and, and Dennis gets kicked out and he leaves me out there alone. Which, so if you're another one of the members on the team, teammates on the Bulls, you're probably thinking, hey, what the hell? You know, like, we were a part of this team too. Um, nonetheless, after the game, Dennis knows that Michael's pissed off because he got kicked out. So he goes to visit Michael after the game. They, you know, have a little conversation in the hotel and then after that, Dennis was just rock solid. The Bulls start winning a ton of games because of Rodman's focus. And we we learned a lot of things about Dennis. He's someone who got kicked out of his home at 18. And for him, he just wanted to always play hard basketball. He wanted to play hard at all, at all points of every game. And, and that was what enamored coaches with him along the way. You have a player like Dennis who just works, 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 works. You love that kind of a player. So he's drafted uh, 27th overall by Detroit in the 1986 draft. And when he comes into the league, he's not the Rodman that we know with the the goofy costumes and the dyed color hair and, and you know, kicking cameraman and, and with his outburst. He's a simpleton. He's someone who just enjoys the little things. And he talks about how it was like in his second or third year in the NBA when he figured out what he could do best, which was rebound and defend. And he was able to perfect those things. He was able to uh, go to the gym, have everyone take shots, so he could just see the way the balls would come off the rim. He'd actually tell them to try to miss the shots. He would watch the bounces, the angles. He learned the spin on the ball. He always put himself in the right position. Everybody else is working on their jump shot, their crossover. He His approach is different. He says, I'm going to be the one to stop them. I'm going to be the one to shut them down. 
and he wanted to be like the rash on your arm. <laughs> Explicit language coming in a minute. Gary Payton called him the fuck-up person, the one who just messes everything up. Uh, Chuck Daly, the coach, he loved Rodman. He said to some of the coaches, you don't put a saddle on a Mustang. And we're talking about the era when you could foul really hard and get away with it. There were no cheap fouls, fights all the time, and the Pistons started to really embrace the bad boy mantra. They liked it. So we then start to learn a little bit about Doug Collins, who is the new coach of the 86-87 Bulls. Um, He's a young guy, really fun. He has a great relationship with MJ and super energetic. And in the first game that he coached, Michael Jordan scored 50. And he told a story about how he was a little nervous late in the game and Michael came over in the fourth quarter and told him, don't worry, I'm going to win this game. I won't let you lose your first game here. And uh, he said, wow, I just knew this guy was incredible. And Doug... Doug's coaching style was that he just he knew what Michael was and he designed everything around Michael. He coached him hard in practice. He he didn't take it easy on him, but he knew what a special talent he really was and and he just figured get the ball to Michael. So we flash to the 89 Eastern Conference. It's the first round into the Bulls against the Cavs. And the Cavs beat them all six times in the regular season. This is when teams, the schedule was different. Teams played more. So it goes to Game 5 in Cleveland. The Bulls are up two games to one. And MJ knew... That is a good moment where MJ knew all the sports writers' predictions, and he was talking trash to all of them because they all predicted against the Bulls. It's funny to look back because we know Michael Jordan is one of the greatest winners and greatest basketball player of all time, but when we're looking at the Jordan of the 86, 87, 88, 89, this isn't a Jordan that has that reputation yet. He's a Jordan that people think is just a scorer. He's someone who people don't think is a winner. He don't, he's someone that people don't think makes his teammates better. So he hasn't he hasn't got over the hump yet. So MJ hits a shot to go up one with six seconds to go. And then the Bulls give up this unbelievable layup on the other end. So now they're down one with three seconds left. And he hits the, the famous game-winning double-clutch shot from the free-throw line known as the shot. And they, you know, they tell a story about how um, Ron Harper wanted to defend MJ. And MJ knew that Harper defended him better, but they give Craig Elo the assignment. And he, I will say... Like, they act like Elo didn't play defense on him. He was right up in his face. Jordan made one of the most difficult shots you'll ever see, and he did it with all the pressure in the world to win a series. Just an incredible, incredible game-winning shot. And that was... Not that he hadn't had big moments, but that was one of the the first big moments that resulted in winning. Not that he hadn't tried plenty. So... Now the Bulls go to the Eastern Conference Finals versus the Pistons, and that's, this is a lot. This episode is a lot about, and these two episodes are a lot about getting over the hump. They had to get by the Pistons. Every team has a team that you have to eventually, you know, have to slay the dragon in order for you to go on and win. And for these Bulls, it was the bad boy Pistons teams. So the 
Pistons, they loved being the team that messed everything up. They loved standing in the way. They had a chip on their shoulders because they didn't think people liked them as much as the Lakers or the Celtics or the other, you know, really popular teams of the time. Bulls go up 2-1 in the series and then come the Jordan rules where the Pistons just beat the crap out of Jordan. They hit him. They want to hurt him. They end up uh, winning the series. The Pistons do 4-2. And now we kind of flash back to, to Rodman. And it shows uh, when Rodman was starting to really change mentally. He had a gun in the truck. Um, he got traded to the Spurs from Detroit. He starts coloring his hair. He's dating Madonna. And so the Bulls start looking in. A couple years later, the Bulls are looking into bringing in Rodman. Now remember, this is someone who was one of their major rivals and who was part of the team that was beating up on Jordan. So this is a weird... It's a weird marriage initially. But the assistant general manager convinces Krause to take a shot on him. So the Bulls trade for Rodman. They felt that with MJ, with Pippen, with the the leadership that they had, that Rodman wouldn't be as much of a head case there with them. So he comes in and he gives the Bulls, as Steve Kerr mentioned, he gives them the edge that they needed. Michael Jordan said that Dennis Rodman was one of the smartest players he ever played with studied other players' tendencies, knew how to stop them. When you immediately think Dennis Rodman, that's not what you think, right? You think crazy hair color, the worm, you think all over the place, but you don't think one of the smartest basketball players in history. And he was. He really, really was. When you see the way he he approached the game, for him it was defense, it was rebounding, that was his bread and butter, and he was going to do everything he could to help his team win by mastering those specific skills. So in the 97-98 season, the team is finally playing well, and, and now that they're playing, when they're playing well, it's annoying for Michael Jordan because he's getting asked over and over, is this your last season? What's going to happen next year with you and Phil? Everywhere he goes, reporters are all asking him the same thing. He's getting frustrated. So the... The way the first, I mean, some other funny things, like they called MJ's security the sniffs, the the jock sniffs, like the jock sniffers, uh, Mr. Sniffs. We see Craig Sager, who gives uh, Dennis Rodman 20 bucks to pay uh, one of his fines. It's kind of a, a, a joke. And as Piven is recovering from his injury, he makes his return after demanding a trade, and, and he had said he was never going to play for the Bulls again. And it was weird because he, he comes back and it's almost like he comes back and Dennis doesn't feel needed anymore. Dennis was such a weird, strange, unique individual in that he had to be motivated in the right ways. He had to be pushed. He had to be prodded. And he was doing a good job of of accepting responsibility when Pippen wasn't around. He felt like he was Michael's wingman. Now that Pippen's back, he kind of feels like he's the third wheel again and he feels like he he's not needed. So... <laughs> He he wants to take a vacation. Dennis Rodman tells Phil Jackson and, and Michael Jordan in the middle of the season that he needs a vacation. So Phil wants to give him 48 hours. MJ says hell no because he doesn't think Dennis will come back. Sure enough, they give him a, uh, 48 hours, a couple days to go to Vegas in the middle of the season. 
So episode four opens up with Carmen Electra talking about partying in Vegas with Rodman, how Dennis loved going out all hours nonstop. And she doesn't realize that when they're there, this is mid-season for them. So, of course, Dennis does not come back 48 hours later like he's supposed to. So Michael Jordan goes to Vegas and drags him out of bed. Carmen Electra even mentions that, you know, she sees Michael Jordan come in and, and pull and, like, actually get Dennis out and bring him back. But this is kind of what Dennis needed. He loved it. They had a weird, unique relationship. Michael, Scotty, Phil, they accepted him for who he was. They trusted Dennis that when it came game time on the court, he was going to give them everything. He was going to help them win, and he did. And we start to learn a little bit more about Phil in episode four. Um, Phil and Dennis, they have a unique relationship because Phil, Phil is very spiritual. So he's into all sorts of different culture. He's, he's a very smart guy. So he's into a lot of Native American, Native American stuff. And they had this connection. Um, and Phil had said, Dennis, you know what? You're like what they call in the tribe a, a backwards walking person. You're just a different kind of guy. And he understood that Dennis needed to be treated a little bit differently. And Phil knew that because he was he's kind of a different kind of guy too, right? He, his dad was a pastor. His mother was a minister. So you get that spirituality. He was a hippie that took acid. He was just different than all the other NBA guys. And we start to, you know, we see Phil's basketball history growing up. He, the way that he played, his playing style was also compared to Rodman. He wasn't, you know, some flashy, um, you know, one-on-one type player. He was just get the rebound, put it back up, bang, um, bang the boards, just work really hard, outwork you. So, Phil ends up going to Puerto Rico early on in his life to coach. And <laughs> it's interesting, in, in Puerto Rico, there's fires, um, you know, all over the place, rocks being thrown, chicken blood poured on teams' benches. One of the mayors shot one of the officials in the leg. Uh, but Phil learned a lot there before coming to the CBA, wins the CBA title in 1984. Then the Bulls bring him in for an interview for an assistant job, and Phil comes in looking like a hippie, poorly dressed. He, he doesn't end up getting the job. A couple years later, Jerry Krause brings him back in for a, to hire to, a, to interview for an assistant job, and Krause tells him how to dress and what to say to Doug Collins, and they end up giving him the job. Krause always liked Phil, and you could tell he thought Phil was, was the guy early on. One other gentleman that Krause really loved was Tex Winter, who he thought was like the smartest basketball mind ever. That was the first guy that Krause hired in Chicago. And so he's he's thinking that he's putting together this really good coaching staff where you have like the old veteran, the wise mind, Tex Winter. You have, uh, you know, Doug, who's fiery, exciting. And then you have Phil, who's a little bit different. And he's kind of a young up-and-comer too. And the real key with Tex was... He was all about that triangle offense. That's what they wanted to implement there in Chicago. They wanted to use the triangle offense to try to spread the ball around a little bit more because Doug was focusing so much on Michael that they seemed like they had a ceiling. They couldn't really get past that when it was just Michael. They needed to move the ball around a little bit more and and play more a little more as a team. So Doug could feel 
uh, Doug Collins could feel that Phil was being groomed to be the next coach. And MJ didn't love Phil initially because it, this was going to be different for MJ. Doug drew up everything for, for him. Doug loved Michael, the team. It was all about Michael. This triangle offense was completely different. And, you know, MJ says he 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 didn't want Cartwright having the ball late on the clock. <laughs> he's definitely an ass, you know. We love him, but he's an ass. And Phil ends up getting the job now. Phil's the new coach. He feels that in, in order for them to beat the Pistons, they need everyone to contribute. So Pippen becomes, you know, a point forward. His playmaking starts to really come out. And by the 1990 playoffs, they felt ready for Detroit. And then it's Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals, and Pippen has a migraine. He's seeing double. He said he's blinded. He, he can't get his eyesight all throughout the game. He gets taken out of the game early. You can tell Michael Jordan is not happy when he discusses the uh, the migraine game. And this was something early on that kind of ate at, at Scotty and the Bulls. It's were they a team of winners? Michael hadn't won. Then you have you know someone like Scotty in a big game like this, kind of wilting. It seemed like they couldn't get by Detroit. So, after losing that series and that game to Detroit, nobody goes on vacation from the Bulls. They immediately all start working out, and they they change the way that they approach the game. MJ puts on some weight so he can dish out the pain to Detroit. He's always doing double the amount of reps that his trainer says. He's not considered a winner yet, and he wants to win. And he starts really pushing his teammates, like more than they've ever been pushed before and more than he's ever pushed them. He's teaching them a work ethic, and he really rubs off on Scottie Pippen. And and he and Pippen became really, really close. And they bonded. And... There's not a whole lot of mention of Horace Grant, but the one is that Michael said that Horace was always kind of whining and bitching, and and he he seemed like really rattled at all the any time that Detroit would uh, would get under his skin. These Bulls need uh, they needed to get mentally stronger, and they they realized this. So the third time is the charm. The next year in the playoffs, they end up playing the Pistons. They sweep the Pistons. And the Pistons get real chippy towards the end, but the Bulls stay calm, especially Pippen. He was steady as a rock, and the Bulls sweep the Pistons, and the Pistons walk off the court with a few seconds left in the game. They don't shake their hands. This was a big talking point. This really pissed off Michael Jordan. He felt disrespected. A lot of the Bulls felt disrespected because this is a team that that had beat them up the last couple years, they never walked off the court. They always shook their hands after, and Detroit did not give them the same courtesy. Now, Detroit says that Boston did the same thing to them. We see some footage that actually kind of says similar. But uh, whenever whenever Isaiah is talking, MJ says it's all bullshit. Uh, the win meant a lot to them. He wanted the respect from Detroit that the Bulls show Detroit. And... Uh, now it's Bulls-Lakers in the finals, 91. MJ versus Magic, the chance for MJ to become a winner. The Bulls actually lose game one at home, so now it's like right back to, okay, this this is a Bulls team that's not going to be able to get over the hump. And then in game two, they make an adjustment. And 
Scottie Pippen starts to guard MJ. Or excuse me, <laughs> Scottie Pippen not guarding his own teammate. He starts to guard Magic. And, and that changes everything. It completely changes the series. The Bulls win the next three. And then it's game five. It's a close game. And MJ finds Paxton of all people, and he has a monster game. And this is like that that difference in the triangle here where it's just it's Michael embracing the teammates a little bit more. It's him finding them, it's him having faith in them, and then and them stepping up when he needed. And the Bulls win. And Michael gets very emotional. He has finally arrived. We see Magic Johnson who's happy for uh for MJ to win. And then we flash back to uh, the 98 season with MJ on the plane. He's ripping one of his teammates, calling him a womanizer on camera, joking with him. And and then there are so many different things going on throughout this season which make this documentary so much fun to kind of to dig back up. In the middle of the season, right before the All-Star game, on a team that is playing really well, they've won back-to-back championships, and then for no reason... Krause just feels the need to remind everyone that Phil Jackson's not coming back. He's like, why? That's not the time and the place for the like statements like that. And then so that stirs up the questions with MJ. He said he's not going to be playing unless it's Phil. And so we see the Bulls lose to the Jazz right before the All-Star break. And that's basically the end of uh, Episode 4 of The Last Dance. So we're four in. We're going to have a two each each weekend, each Sunday, there's going to be two different episodes released. So we'll recap each one of them as they come through. So far, so good. Having a lot of fun with that one. I know an, uh, an NBA fan out there is our good buddy Craig Milkowski. And we have an interview coming up with Craig Milkowski where we talk about Oaklawn Park and some of the big Saturday stakes races. So, Greg from Time Forum US is going to join us. We're going to talk Oaklawn Park Saturday stakes races. Enjoy. Happy to have back a friend of the show, Craig Milkowski from Time Forum US. Craig, uh, how's the uh, the quarantine life for you over there in Oklahoma? Not, you, you had like a double. You had the quarantine and then almost a tornado scare recently. So, uh, you guys are definitely bunkered down over there. Yeah, we're kind of used to that around here, so nothing really became of it this time, which is always a good thing. We, we've had some scares in the past. Uh, yeah, I guess we got to talk about weather. We don't have any sports to talk about. <laughs> right, yeah. Catch up on sports <laughs> I know before we get in the horse racing. We talk some uh, some basketball or some tennis or whatever's going on, but uh, but yeah, well, the one positive we'll say out there is that um, it looks like in a lot of places that um, there are plans to or already to um, reopen some things, some racetracks. I know some some sports are trying to do it, and and you know what? If everything is um, safe, following protocol, once there's testing, you know, available, which it seems like that's that's kind of coming now for most people. I think it'll be a little bit easier to get things going. And I gotta I gotta give it up. A couple of these racetracks, like Oakland in particular, they've done a, real, a hell of a job, which is it's kind of weird because they were one of the ones that had that like initial scare with Sean Payton and everything. But it seems like they've been, uh, done pretty good in a controlled environment, and their racing has definitely benefited. We have some some excellent races to talk about this weekend. 
Yeah, it's they've done a really good job there. Like you said, it was a little scary there on Rebel Weekend and some other tracks too. Gulfstream's been plugging right along. Mm-hmm. I know they had a scare with Javier Castellano, but whatever they're doing must be working because I'm not hearing about anybody getting sick and the, the racing's going. And I'm thankful to have it, and I really appreciate all the work those guys are doing. Okay, so let's jump into this weekend's races. The the way it was at, at Oakland Park, this would was obviously supposed to be the Kentucky Derby weekend So what Oakland did is They flipped a couple of their stakes They had a, a, a three-year-old stakes race That they would have run um, A little bit later on in the meet That was the uh, Oakland stakes And they flipped it with the Arkansas Derby So they made the Arkansas Derby kind of like the Unofficial Kentucky Derby In a way that, you know, there were, since there were probably Going to be a lot of horses pointing to this date that they could keep a big race on the weekend and have a lot of horses at least kind of not disrupt their schedule a whole heck of a lot. And and then it, this race, I saw you kind of tweet and talk a little bit about this. This race um, had 22 horses enter, but already uh, I believe we've had like four that have scratched out. So now we're down to two fields of nine. This would have been a much better race if we could have had like the best 14 horses in, instead of two fields of nine where we could very easily have two Baffert favorites win. Yeah, I mean, as a better, I think it would have been better as just one really good race. But I understand why they did it sure, for the it horse. Sure, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, these guys need places to run their horses. And, and I don't have a problem with it. I was just being a little selfish because, yeah. I mean, th- this would have been a fabulous 14-horse field. Absolutely. Maybe even a, a version of the Preakness. You know, we don't get mm-hmm. the, quite as big a field for that race. But um, in any case, it still drew some really good good horses and i'm happy to have it and we're looking forward to handicapping it it's just a great card all the way through uh, i you know david uh, aragona who i work with uh mm-hmm. we did a podcast where we cover about 70 of these races so if some of your listeners want to hear some thoughts on some of the other races we even talk about the fantasy on friday uh, have a listen at that but that's it let's dive yeah. into these yeah there's some good maiden specials and some allowance races earlier on in the card that have drawn some some very nice quality horses and we're not gonna have to go far in race 11 to talk about uh, you know i guess the horse that many people think has been the the most talented three-year-old that they've seen so far this year and it's a horse who has not faced stakes company yet he will be doing so for the first time and he definitely looked like he caught the easier of the two divisions of this arkansas derby when it split and then to make it I guess even a little bit easier I thought one of the horses in here that could At, at least make things difficult on him um, From an early speed standpoint Was Shooter Shoot And now the word is that Shooter Shoot and Wrecking Crew Both will be scratched out of this race So it looks like it's just going to be um, a field of nine now And we have Charlatan Who has a couple monster races A couple monster figures um, I mean we haven't really even seen Like uh, this horse scratch the surface Of, of you know what he has But um, do, do you think it's just about you know him and then maybe trying to hook some horses up underneath, or can you can you see horses that that could beat him in here? Uh, I'm not going to try to beat him personally. I posted a list on Twitter of the the top ten time form U.S. speed figures for three year olds this year, and he was the top two places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you said, he hasn't even been in a stakes race. That's not something we're normally going to see. Uh, but we did see something similar with Justify a few years yep. ago where he started out in a maiden race and an allowance race. Now, I'm not saying this horse is as good as him, but he's certainly really talented. Uh, as you said, he drew the the much, just not a lot of depth to this division. He draws the rail. Uh, he's lone speed. 
So he's not a horse I'm looking to beat. I think you'll be lucky if you bet him and he wins to, to get $3. I imagine he's going to be in that one to two range. And from a betting standpoint, I, I just don't, I don't bet those kind of horses personally. So I took a look at some others looking for some, some exacta value, maybe trifecta value. And the only one, I, I'm not a big fan of the second choice on the morning line, Governor Morris. I mean, he's a decent enough horse. Ran an okay fourth behind Tis the Law in the Florida Derby last time. But the horse that really interests me in those underneath spots is Basin. He's yep. a uh, Steve Asmussen trained horse. He had just a, a brutal trip last time out. Mm-hmm. And his trip the first time wasn't all that great either. His first time back from the layoff. So he's one I think is probably sitting on a big race. Uh, maybe if I, I was making a pick four or pick five, I, I might throw him in as a C. But I, I just can't see anyone else in this field personally. Yeah, for me, as I was wanting to, you know, because like I, I, I always want to try to zig when everyone zags and go the opposite way. And I was like, you know, I, when I was looking through Shooter Shoots races, I'm thinking, okay, maybe this horse actually broken on top of Charlatan when they raced each other. So he got in front of him first jump, and then kind of Charlatan, like a couple strides later, was in front. I was hoping Shooter Shoot could at least press him, and now I'm just. Because I was with you, um, I, I really wanted to make a big case for Basin to win this race, and now the way that I'm seeing it shape up, it's like somebody's gonna really have to go after Charlatan, or he's gonna have to stumble from the rail or get himself in trouble, and that's just hard to project. It's like I don't, I'm not necessarily always projecting a horse like this that's just gonna have to take a couple steps like way backwards. So, um, for me, Basin's the, the absolute other horse. Um, I guess if you're looking for you know, another price horse, like a, an underneath to hook some up with. I'm okay with crypto cash with giving him another shot at, you know, bottom of your tries. If you're playing charlatan basin and you're looking for some, um, you know, some value underneath, he got the race um, off the bench out of the way last time out. He was chasing a horse who ended up being lone speed. And, you know, I, I didn't mind his race on the dirt back at, uh, at Ellis going long. So I think he might be able to just kind of flop into the bottom of the exotics if you're looking for a price. So um, I'm with you though. It's just, you, we want to try to beat horses that are really short prices, but sometimes you just got to say it's not worth trying to beat them. And I just don't, I don't think you're going to be able to with the way this race shapes up in, a, in the 11th race, that first of the Arkansas derbies. So, yeah, um, me, yeah, me personally, when I see these kind of races and I have a really hard time beating the favorite, uh, I really don't have an issue just passing the race. Or need, oh, yeah. Like, Playing exotics, and the main reason is because when those horses don't win, it's usually a result that I wasn't ever going to foresee anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's just you not, know, yeah. it's not like uh, it's not one that I could come and say I really liked another horse, which I don't. And you know, I'm kind of with you on your uh, your crypto cash ID, and that that's where I was going with Basin. I'm going to use him in the two three mm-hmm. spots, but because I don't like a horse like Governor Morris and, and a No Door. Uh, I'm going to look for just some crazy horse to get the, you know, fill that other spot in the try and maybe try to find some value that way. Yeah, we're totally, uh, I think, in, in you know, uh, unison with those two, too. Like, I just, Governor Morris is okay. You know, he's okay. He's like a plotter. He's like a grinder. But in a race like this where he, he just doesn't feel like he can win the race, I'm I'm definitely fine with taking shots against him underneath. And then a new door, it's just hard because... I guess Storm the Court's been okay so far this year, but that juvenile form and those races that he's coming out of, that form is just not holding up at all, you know, like whatsoever. So, I'm, you know, I, I don't mind getting away from maybe the next uh, tier of choices after Charlatan and then starting with maybe Basin and then uh, and then some deeper prices afterwards. Um, yeah, it, 
Definitely looks like on paper maybe the lesser of the two of the uh, the Arkansas Derbies. We'll see the other in race thirteen, but in race number twelve, we get a really stacked Oakland handicap here. I mean, there are depending on how you handicap, who you look at, there are many horses in here that I would not talk somebody off. You know, if they came to me and said they liked six maybe or seven different horses in this race, I I could I could see why I could see the cases being made in here. So in a field like this, a field of 14 Where there are a ton of You know, different directions to go How do you kind of start this race? Um, who, who are, I guess, one or some of your top tier horses? Uh, for me I, I'm always going to start with the horse That's run the fastest figures And kind of use that as my baseline And to be honest, I'm not putting a lot of stock Into the morning line uh, here David and I it talked seems about seems a little this. off, yeah. yeah We talked about this today I, I don't want to rip whoever did it Because it's a thankless job And in a field like this I personally wouldn't have the slightest idea Where to start But I think Mr. Freeze is the horse to beat. Uh, He ran a really big race in the Pegasus when he finished second behind uh, that Bob Baffert horse, Mucho Gusto. And uh, he came back and confirmed that form when he romped. And I think it was a Gulfstream mile with an even bigger number from me. Uh, He got a 133 that day. Uh, For people who aren't familiar with my figures, generally we're about 20 points higher than the buyer figures. I mean, that, that doesn't apply to every race, of course. And we look at pace as opposed to uh, just final time like the buyers does, but it'll get you in the ballpark. But for me, Mr. Freeze is, is clearly the horse to beat. And the other one for me is improbable. Uh, I know he gets a lot of knocks in, in social media, and it's just a horse, so I don't get offended by that. I mean, you know, I love horses, but I, I don't know why people get all upset mm-hmm. when people uh, get onto a horse. Because trust me, I've been around enough horses, they don't care. They don't know. Uh, <laughs> but I actually think in, in, you know, looking at his 14 post draw, for a lot of horses, that would be a bad thing. But for him, it's a pretty good thing. Because he's been known to act up in the gate, particularly when he draws inside, he gets anxious in there, and it, it usually just doesn't turn out well for him. And, and given it's a pretty good run to the first turn at this mile and an eighth distance, uh, I think improbable is the other one. I really liked his return race last time when he had a similar post. He did wind up losing some ground, and it probably ultimately cost him the race behind Tom's Data, who's one of the better horses in training right now. But uh, take nothing away from the effort. Uh, he ran really well so for me those are the two i would start with yeah i completely agree with your uh your sentiments on improbable being outside versus inside i'd much rather have him there than maybe down on the inside because if he didn't break well and then he gets kind of shuffled back he's not the type that's got like a big big turn of foot who might be able to you know um to to deal with that kind of trouble so he's best suited where he can kind of sit out there maybe sit in the clear even lose a little bit of ground because um he he should be able to kind of just stay out of out of trouble hopefully out there he he kind of what's funny he kind of reminds me a little bit of Tac, of Tacitus um they they they're kind of similar i think in like reputation and stuff they're both like super talented horses but they seem like they never really Get get the big W It's funny to look back as Improbable was favored In the Derby and in the Preakness If you forget about that last year um, Tacitus is a horse who takes a ton of money also You know he was favored in the uh, the Travers, he was favored in the Belmont, he takes a ton of money What do you think about him? Is he a horse? I mean Like he fits with this group on class and stuff But he just always seems to come up a little Short and are you Worried with the horse, with some of these horses That have traveled back and forth? Uh, the travel doesn't bother me, but I can tell you now, I mentioned this earlier today, I filed for divorce from Tacitus <laughs> a, few, a few starts ago. Uh, 
he just burned me a few times. Yep. I made excuses for him and it didn't work out. And sometimes you just got to cut bait and mm-hmm. move on. He mm-hmm. can certainly win this race. He's a talented race horse. He runs a lot of fast figures. But for whatever reason, he just doesn't seem to get the job done. Um, he's still, you know, he's only a four-year-old. He, You know, horses generally are still improving at this point when they're still in training, probably all the way up to and into their five-year-old season. So I wouldn't write him off as a racehorse, but as a betting option for me until he shows me different, uh, I'm, I'm not going to bite on him. And frankly, I have that kind of opinion about a lot of the horses in here. Uh, mm-hmm. Combatants won. He, He's actually the morning line favorite. I don't see any way he takes more money than improbable, for example. I'd probably reverse those two morning lines and and be close. But, I mean, he's a horse that won the the Santa Anita Handicap last time out. But I don't want to kid ourselves here. That was probably the weakest Santa Anita Handicap I can remember on dirt in in quite a while. It only got a 120 time form U.S. speed figure for me. It's a race that the par is probably around 130. And it just wasn't a very strong race. Uh, he's turning back in distance, so not a big fan of his. And another horse that's catching a lot of people's attention is By My Standards. Uh, he kind of romped at the fairgrounds a couple times, looked really good doing it. But for me, he, he's had some really easy setups. He, he's had some, yeah, easy, not much pace in the race. He sat off a slow to moderate paces, uh, just off, and just beat beat horses that aren't as good as what he's going to face here. So you know, he could certainly take a step forward and maybe he's got that 130 kind of speed figure in him that could win this race. But as a horse, that's probably going to be, you know, one at second, maybe third choice at most. That's not something I'm interested in personally, and I'm going to look to beat him. That's I, I think that's kind of the, the point for me, too, with by my standards is that not that he can't win this race, but I feel like he's going to get hooked a little bit wide in this race with a lot of horses who kind of have maybe a, a, like either speed or tracking speed who maybe don't want to be too far out of it. And I just don't I, I would prefer him, you know, at a, in an improbable price. If you're giving me six or eight to one on him, I'm OK with that. I, I just don't I don't know if I'm going to get that with him um, in here. A horse who I kind of, um, we, you know, we've mentioned most of them. There's there's a couple others that I want to give a give a shout to at least. Um, Warriors Charge is a, is a cool horse. He he doesn't do a whole lot wrong. I just don't know if this race shapes up for him very well. You know, with Mister Freeze and with some other speeds in here, but he's definitely like a just. I like seeing horses like this. We don't we don't see a whole lot of horses just use their speed and, and go anymore. Um, and, and so it's nice kind of refreshing to see an old older horse like this, uh, Warriors Charge, who's really only poor race ever was in the Preakness, and he even run poor that day. It was just the, the day that he didn't hit the board. I kind of like uh, Trophy Chaser as a horse who's coming into his own and maybe can sit a bit. And then what about a horse like... Um, like a like night ops who has been good locally. Do either one of those horses at a price? Can you make a case or throw them into some of your exotics? Uh, sure. I mean, like you said, these are all good horses in here for the most part. Uh, Trophy Chaser is a horse Dave and I have talked about uh, a lot of times. He ran a huge race two back when he won that allowance. We both loved him when he shipped to Tampa, but he wound up only being two to one. So he didn't get a whole lot of money for your, your value that day. But he's one. Uh, I'm not so I'm a big Warriors Charge fan. I love this horse last year. Uh, he romped on, I think it was Oklahoma Derby Day last year. 
But he's a horse that I, I just have a feeling he really has to have the lead. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's going to be a, t- a tough ask in here. And if he does get it, he's going to kind of go really fast like he did in the Preakness. I actually bet him in the Preakness last year. He ran well, but, he, you know, it was just a better field. The pace was hot. But that's the race that kind of gives me pause with him. He's had a couple of really easy preps this year. He skipped some spots where he probably would have been the favorite to to point to this one. So, you know, he could win, but it's going to be a tough deal for him. He He's a local horse. So, you know, it's not one that I, I would probably, I say local, he's run at Oakland many yeah. times. I'm mm-hmm. not sure where he trains, but I imagine it is there. But yeah, I'm against him a bit. Uh, if I was going to take a shot at a price, I, I would probably use Tax. He's a horse who's sure. run some really fast races. Uh, his Pegasus, he had a bit of trouble at the start and just didn't run a lick, but uh, if you can put a line through that, his trainer, Danny Gargan's as hot as anybody out there right now, and he's got the ability. So there, there's not a whole lot in this race that would surprise me. I think it's yeah. one where you just got to look for value and and hope you're right. You're going to be wrong a lot in races like this. Uh, we all are. So when you're right, you really want to make sure you get paid. Yeah, and this is a race too where I know we're all going to be get probably caught up in the pick fours and pick fives and stuff. But if you're not that kind of a person, a player, or if you're not someone, maybe you get knocked out or something, and you're looking at this race when you're watching it individually, just kind of see. Okay, it's a wide open field, right? We've already talked about six or seven different horses that we felt wouldn't really shock us. So demand the value. You know, like who who do you look at and you go, you know what? They're the overlay in here. This horse is probably double what they should be. That's where you should play. And even if win or lose, when you continue to do that in fields like this, you're going to be better in the long run because this is a, a field where you just don't want to take too short of a price or like an underlaid price on whoever you like. So just to demand that that value here in what is what is a fun race. Like that's that's the one. A lot of negatives going on. The one positive at Oakland is we've gotten to see some some races this year that kind of felt old school. Uh, right, Craig. Like we we don't generally see prep races like this Oakland handicap because they're all spread out. You know, there's some horses that'd be running at Santa Anita that'd be that have been running at Keeneland, Gulfstream here and there, New York, all over. But it seems like a lot of the big ones, um, you know, ended up kind of pointing towards some of these Oakland races. In the last few weeks, we've got some absolutely loaded kind of older races which we don't see. It was kind of fun, and and even the fantasy and then and some of the Philly races on Friday, they've been stacked. Yeah, they sure have. I mean, uh, let's be honest, the other tracks, uh, they're running and it's great. And I love watching them and betting them, but they're not running the quality that Oakland is. Uh, Gulfstream's kind of, I don't think they've run much of a stakes race, maybe a couple small stakes races since Florida Derby Day. I don't think Tampa's run a stakes race since Tampa Bay Derby Day. Uh, So, you know, no knocking on those tracks at all. Fawner had a fun little race where a nice horse, uh, Mm -hmm. Sleepy Eyes Todd won yesterday. So there is some stuff to watch, but none of it. You dished that that horse out as a winner on Oklahoma Derby Day, I think, uh, on on, That's What G said last year, I think, or one of those, uh, was it? Yeah, one of those days that he won a big race. That was the horse that you were all over. So, yeah, I love to watch when Todd Todd, uh, is running. He's I'm, I'm always been a fan of his. And and hey, you know what? We're, again, we're not going to complain. We're glad there's something there's something out there. Uh, and, and this Oaklawn is really really good. As we get to the second Arkansas Derby race number thirteen, so this is the one where I guess you you, you kind of start with Nadal, who's the other very strong Baffert. He's undefeated. His Rebel win was. You know, visually it's impressive. It's been kind of a he's kind of become a polarizing horse because a lot of folks don't really like him, don't don't seem to think he's very good. And a lot of the like the fig some of the figures, the sheets and things like that, 
don't say that he's a monster or anything. Um, he's kind of, and I like him quite a bit. I, I think he's a really talented horse. I'm just a little worried, um, you know, that he may be kind of one dimensional. And, and I guess getting off the rail a, a bit, we'll be able to see if he can, can sit if he has to, but he's probably the quickest in here. Um, I guess. So where do you stand on it all? Uh, well, I, first off, I can't be a fan of the horse because, you know, I'm a huge Novak. <laughs> yes, exactly. Fan. Yeah. So right away, <laughs> it's already a, a, a bad taste in your mouth, you know. <laughs> right. But no, 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 nothing against the horse. But uh, he's never going to be my favorite. But I, I'm in your camp. I, I think he's really talented. Uh, his figures aren't near as good as Charlatan. He's about five points below his last couple races. But you know, I think he's kind of had a, his his hand was forced last time. He drew mm-hmm. the rail on a sloppy track. There was a lot of speed. He got pressed, and he had to go. So I, I don't have any fault with that effort. Uh, I do clearly think he is the horse to beat in here, but I don't think he's near the standout that Charlatan is. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, watching his, his last workout, uh, David had mentioned it, so I actually went and watched it. And it looks like uh, Bob Baffert's kind of working with him to to get him to read a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it won't surprise me if he does that. Not, I mean, I'm not saying he's going to be back in 6th or 7th or something. That's not going to happen. But with a horse like Wells Bayou drawing outside who is almost sure he has to go, it's the only way he ever runs. He goes right to the front and goes as fast as he can. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see Nadal just kind of let him go and, and tip out a little bit and sit in that second, maybe third position, depending what King, King Guillermo does as well. And personally, I think he'll handle it just fine. I haven't yeah. seen anything that makes me think he's a speed crazy need the lead horse it was just kind of circumstances of the races he was in this is one where we do i'm sure you're familiar with our pace projector and it's one where we have nadal pegged in front we say the pace is going to be fast and a lot of times that concerns me but this isn't one of those because with young lightly raced horses like him uh from what i've seen i don't think he has to be in front and you mentioned um, a couple of the others that, that will probably be forwardly placed up there. So King Guillermo was interesting because he kind of surprised folks at nearly 50 to 1 when he won the Tampa Bay Derby. But he did it really impressively. And it wasn't like like a fl- like he won that race. It wasn't like everybody else lost that race. Um, you know, it, it, he earned a good number. It was a strong effort. He's a quality animal. I I just still kind of a I still have some reservations on him though. Like I'm I'm not quite sure if I want to use him at where he's pegged price wise in here. I'd like maybe to get a little bit more, but where do you stand with him? Yeah, especially given the three to one morning line. I'm not sure if he's going to be near there, but like you said, he ran okay. There's no doubt he was the mm-hmm. best horse in that race. I mean, he won by almost five lengths. He got a one seventeen on our figures. I think it was actually 119. I have mine set to adjust for weight, and he's carrying some more weight today. But looking back in that race, one of the tools I really like to use in our past performances is to go through the charts. And you can click on it, and you can scroll through all the horses past and prior races. And I just don't think that was a very strong race at all. So, yeah, he won easy, but he wasn't beating a whole lot in there. There's been like five runbacks from that race, and I think the best any horse has done is a, a not even a good third place finish. Uh, now, granted, the runner-up and the third place horses haven't run back, but I just don't think it was a strong race. He's stepping way up in competition, and at what's going to be a probably short price, he's not for me. And I could say the same about Wells Bayou as well. I was all over. I loved him last time. 
But I just think this spot's going to be a lot tougher. Uh, he's going to have to work a lot harder to get the lead. He's actually turning back in distance, which you don't see much often this yeah. time of year yeah. for three-year-olds because they did that new uh, experiment with the Louisiana Derby going a mile and 316. Uh, I say experiment. I imagine they'll keep it there. But he's just a couple of these, I think. He only ran a 115 that day on an easy lead, which I, I – I don't think he's going to get – he may get the lead, but it's not going to be easy. So I'm against him. Uh, there's a couple others that, that kind of caught my eye a little bit more. Um, I'm going to use Silver Prospector. Mm-hmm. I, I think he had an excuse last time. Um, it wasn't – when you watch the race, it, it doesn't completely explain away how poorly he ran. I think some of it had to do with the track surface, and he just wasn't himself that day. But he had run really well the time before that, and I'm going to give him a shot to get back to it. And the other one that interests me is Farmington Road. Yes. Uh, he's he's a horse who definitely does not have the figures that Nadal has. He's still a cup below. But he has literally improved his speed figure in every single one of his starts. I expect him to do the same. The added distance isn't going to hurt at all. And I, I really liked his racing at Oakland Stakes last time. He, he looked like he was going to win. He should have won, really, had he run straight the last yep. 50 yards, but he was kind of goofing around. He was but, a little green. Yep, he was a little yeah, green. Mm-hmm. He was, but being by Quality Road, uh, I, th- I think the extra distance isn't going to prove any prior. It's the same distance, but uh, he, he should handle the distance just fine, and, and I look for him to run a faster race. Yeah, I think we're in some trouble because we're in very, uh, very solid agreement. I think in this one, like I have complete respect for Nadal. Not, not. I'm, I'm willing to, to kind of go away from King Guillermo in here. But for me, the next horses I would be looking at would be Silver Prospector, Farmington Road, and then the one that you didn't mention. Um, that I, I'm curious on him is Tyshawn. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a little something there. I don't know if he's good enough to win this race. He wasn't far behind Farmington Road a couple lengths, and he made this big move. He kind of. He he! I like that he showed he can sit a little bit. Um, he just moved a little too early, going a mile and an eighth. You're, you're obviously going to get uh, Rosario leaving for Nadal, which doesn't bother me a whole lot. But his, you know, in his race two back when he was on the lead, I don't think he'll get the lead here. I like that he can sit. I, I don't think he's too far behind some of the tops in here. So maybe a little improvement for him. But I'm I'm kind of okay with uh, with going against Guillermo, and, and then I guess we'll we'll have to mention um, uh, the the two year old champ. He hasn't been as bad as some of the others that were good at two and that have come back and not run well at all, stormed the court. His races were okay. Actually, he was, you know, kind of chasing and pressing authentic uh, as best that he could last time out. But he just, I, I don't think even if he steps forward in here, he's probably good enough to beat, you know, a, at least a few. Yeah, I, I don't have any real knocks on Storm Nakorda. I just have trouble seeing him beat Nadal. I, I don't mm-hmm. think he's fast enough. Uh, as you said, that juvenile has turned out to be pretty much an eyesore. Now, as you mentioned, he hasn't run terrible this year. His, no. his return in the San Vicente, he ran pretty well, made a nice move, uh, beat by Nadal. Uh, that race against Authentic, who's the one Bafford horse who didn't make the trip here, who, who's up there, was a, a very strong race. Uh, Honor AP was second. So, yeah, no big knocks. I, I'm just thinking he's going to get money, and, and you know he's probably going to be second choice, I would guess, in this field. I, I think he'll probably get back more than Wells by you just based on the post position. And, you know, he's okay. I, I couldn't blame anybody for using him in this race, but he's not one for me. Yep, so we'll uh, we'll give Lindahl a look. Definitely Farmington Road as a horse who could get the, the pace shape in here. And I just hope with, with Farmington Road, um, 
you know, it, it's it's little things with the horses that that don't have a lot of speed because you just don't have to always be dead last. You know, and sometimes if you could just be tenth of thirteen instead of dead last, and you're in front of a few horses and you don't have to maneuver in between every horse and go around every single one, it's kind of what happened with Farmington Road last time out. He kind of got crossed over on, and then he was a little bit farther back than he had to be. I mean, he was legitimately fifteen to twenty out of it at one point. Before he starts his rally um, So just maybe we can get Just a, a, a little bit You know I'm not talking about him sitting second or third But just maybe you're not dead last And, and we'll get at least a good run For our money with the horse coming D- Does it worry you at all with some of these jocks that haven't been run, um, Been uh, been Riding a lot lately uh, Not particularly I mean, Yeah I gotta ask dirt that especially really. Yeah when dirt especially I don't pay a whole lot of Attention to riders it's usually built Into the price mm-hmm. I mean I'll notice Big changes but most of the top guys They're pretty much interchangeable In my opinion uh, on turf It's a little bit of a different story but on Dirt yeah I don't I'm, Jockey's about 15th on the th- uh, List of things I look at uh, I will say with Farmington Road He was first time blinkers last time So it's kind of odd that he went all the way back yeah. to dead glass like that. Maybe that was the plan. Uh, I don't expect that to happen again here. Uh, I, I think he's going to be a little closer up, and they're leaving the blinkers on, so maybe that you know the experience, whatever they were trying, work. But ho- hopefully, it doesn't involve dropping weight to the back of the pack because that, that's just a tough way to win in U.S. racing. Even a dirt turf, it doesn't matter. You, you want to get some early position. Craig Milkowski, Time Form US. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please tell the wife and the family I said hello. Send them uh, our love. I'll, I'll send some pictures of uh, of Milo over very soon. He's getting he's doing this new thing where with his tongue where he's kind of figured out his tongue, so he's sticking it out all the time, which is <laughs> which is a lot of fun. So uh, always love talking to you. Love catching up, and hopefully next time when we do, we'll be able to talk some racing and some other sports also. Yeah, that would be fun. Uh, Elsie did say to tell you hello as well. So we look Give forward it. to it. And one of these days, Gino, we're going to meet you in person and absolutely get to see Milo. So. We have to do that. Uh, give us your plugs, uh, the Pace Cast, and where can we find uh, you online and everything like that? Uh, online, I'm just on Twitter. I'm Timeform US Figs. Uh, pretty easy to find. And then our podcast, you can find them on DRF TV or on YouTube. Just search for the DRF YouTube channel, and they're always posted there. Usually, we do Tuesday and Friday. Uh, this week, we did Tuesday and Thursday because of the fantasy stakes being Friday. Mm-hmm. So it's already out there and posted for those that want to listen. Craig Milkowski, Timeform US. Thank you very much, buddy. Have a great weekend coming up, and uh, let's make some money at Oakland. Yeah, sounds good, bud. Talk later. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to continue on That's What G Said, but you're going to hear from one of our sponsors. Just stay tuned for a moment. One of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast is Cindy Carava, full-service realtor, and I am here over in Glendora at Coldwell Banker with Cindy Carava. Cindy, how was 2019 for you? Tell us uh, a little bit about what, uh, what kind of stuff you were working on. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. Uh, 2019 was just really great. Uh, I had a great year uh, selling homes all the way from Altadena, Arcadia, Monrovia, out to Upland and Ontario just recently. Um, The market has has been uh, really good. Um, We're looking forward to 2020 with an increase in home prices about 5.8% this year, opposed to last year where it was a little softer. We saw uh, more like homes averaging about 3.5% in increase in value. 
Um, it's also looking great for buyers. Uh, the interest rates right now are going to be staying under 4%. So if you've been on the fence about thinking about buying a home, now is the time to do so with interest rates still staying low. And you offer more services than just the buying, selling, and leasing homes. Tell us about some of the other services that you offer and what a full-service realtor really is. So you're right, Gino. Besides me being uh, a full-service realtor of uh, finding properties for my clients to buy or selling their homes or finding rentals for them, um, I also have a plethora of resources like uh, handyman, contractors, electricians, plumbers. Uh, I even, if like I said, if you're thinking about getting a home loan, I actually work with two great lenders that I can recommend to anybody. And you're all over the internet, social media, websites. Let us know some of the places where we can find you. I know I've seen some reviews on Yelp and on Zillow. Everyone always has positive things to say. Everybody hears me raving about you all the time. But where can uh, everyone else find out information about you or contact? Thank you, Gino. Yeah, I am on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, And uh, you can contact me on my website, which is www.cindycarava.com, or my email, which is cindyc.realtor at gmail.com, or feel free to call or text me on my cell phone, which is 626-394-6400. Cindy is awesome. She's one of the kindest and most genuine people I've ever met. I promise you, you will enjoy every minute you interact with her. So thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, Appreciate all of your support from That's What She Said podcast. Thank you, Gino. Have a great day, everyone. And a big thank you to Craig Milkowski there. Make sure to give him a follow and check out that Timeform US Pacecast. It does a great job each and every week. Let's give you a... Just a little uh, recap of some of the the plays for me at Oaklawn Park. So um, we'll go through some of the early part of the card. Remember, just races 10, uh, race 11, 12, 13, just talked about with Craig. My first play is going to come in race number two. I'm going to go to the number one, She's the Boss, there. Her dam won twice on the dirt and was multiple stakes placed on the dirt. This Philly debuted going five and a half furlongs on the turf. She actually had a good start. She was second um, early on. She was just behind the leader, but then she got shuffled back um, multiple times. She was on the inside. She really had a brutal trip. Now she adds the blinkers. I think she has some a little more speed from the inside than she was actually able to show, and I wouldn't be shocked if she sends hard and gets the lead against a group that is not experienced. The number one, she's the boss. If we can get three to one, we'll make a win wager in race number two at Oaklawn Park. Let's get you to race number four at Oaklawn, and I'm going to go to the number 11 bank in here. This one was inside chasing lone speed on a wet track and couldn't really make up a ton of ground, but did dig in late and re-rally and won the battle for third, just missed second that day. That was his first start since October Every right to improve and take a a step forward, second start off of the bench, second time at three. That's the number 11. Bank will be using the 11 in all your exotics. You make a win wager if we can get around five to two or so. In race number five, to me, the, the outside, the number 11 endorsed is the one that I would play in here. He's coming off of a... You know, a fifth place finish in the big cap. He was he wasn't beating a whole heck of a lot. I thought he actually ran pretty well, and that was his second start off of a long, long layoff. He broke out a bit, but he sat the he, he sat a fine trip, but he he somehow ends up 
last four wide going into the turn. He's asked for a run, um, but he has to go six wide at the top of the lane. So then he ends up flattening out a little bit. He just misses fourth. And he outfinished 235, and then 235 came back to win a race very similar to this at Oakland Park on April the 19th. I think Endorse is going to be really, really tough in here. So if you want to play any kind of early exotics, this, or this may be a horse to single in on, to me he feels like he's he should be a, a much, much shorter price. And I think if anything anything over like 2 to 1 or so, that that's value. In race number 6, it'll be the next play for us. It's the number 7 Ring of Fire. There's just no speed in here. He's going to stretch out from 6 furlongs. He broke right on top going six furlongs, then he sits second, he's just to the outside of the leader, he's asked for some run in between horses, and it was a fine third, the dam of this one is a six-time winner and earned over 640000 is a multiple graded stakes winner going long, he should stretch out fine, he just has hooks a field with no other early speed, that is the number seven, Ring of Fire, we'll make a win wager on him if we get anything around five to one. So races 7 and 8 I think are kind of obvious, won't talk about them a whole lot to me, the, the, the favorites, the short price horses look to be tough in there, but we get to race number 9, and the 8, Lord Guinness was a horse that I gave a long shot look to in the Oakland Mile, and I think we, we just get a wet, a wet track, and you can make a legitimate excuse and put a line right through that. If he runs back to the February race at Golden Gate, to the last time we saw him on the dirt going long at Santa Anita. He is a legitimate upper allowance horse. This is a great spot for him. He fits really nicely with these. That's Lord Guinness, the number 8, at a price. And make sure to use him with the number 7 rotation, who I have zero knocks on, and makes a ton of sense in here too. Grade 3 winner, 2 starts back. Might have needed the last start in the slop a little bit. Moved to the lead, gets a little tired late. So we'll use the 8 with the 7 there. Lord Guinness, if we can get around 8 to 1, we'll make a win wager on him. Make sure to use with rotation. In race number 10, the 12 background is where I'm going to wind up. Uh, I do respect Spanish Kingdom. I do respect Candy Tycoon. I think with with Prodigious Bay, with Rushy in the race, um, there's going to be a good amount of speed in here. We know Ginobili is going to be sent on the stretch out. This could set up really nicely for background. He tried the Oakland Stakes last time out. That was just way too tough of a group, okay? And it's, he gets, you know, in the slop. Not easy always to make up a ton of ground there. Easy excuse. Let's go back to March the 14th. He hopped at the start. He's seventh. He's about seven off. He makes a huge, big, four-wide move. And the top two were just long gone that day. Tyshawn was cruising on the front end. We're going to see him later with a legitimate shot in one of the Arkansas Derby races. The number 12, background. If we can get anything around, you know, 10, 8, 10 to 1, that seems about fair. 8's probably about as low as we want to go. The 11th at Arkansas Derby, for me, it's Basin, it's Charlatan, and then um, as the, the price maybe to use in some of the exotics, it's the number 10, Crypto Cash. And that 12th race, wow, this is a spread out race. I mean, to me, I'm using as many as you can afford to use, but... Keep in mind, Trophy Chaser will be my top selection there in race number 12. And then in race number 13, a lot of respect for Nadal. I think he's going to be very, very tough in here to beat. The other ones that I would include with Nadal, the 9, Tyshawn, the 10, Farmington Road. 
and perhaps Silver Prospector. And then to close things out in race number 14, you know, if you're playing any kind of exotics, I would have the 10 on top. And that's wild about you. He has multiple wins at a mile and a half. He's won at a mile and three quarters. And in his race on April the 16th, he actually had a really good start, but he didn't go on with it. He ends up taking back. He didn't have to take so far back to where he's 15 lengths out of it. And he keeps to the inside. He closed pretty well. It's better than it looks on paper. Now he stretches out. And this is just a a pure distance horse. Let's put the 10 on top. Wild about you. I thought the one danger field should be able to save ground from the inside and have every opportunity if good enough. Don't be shocked if he's really close or right on the lead in here. The four, Magic Vow. No real knocks on him or Carlos Sixes. I think both of them make a lot of sense. If you want to go a little deeper, she might tell. So, if you know, in some of your late exotics, depending on how you're playing, um... You know, throw maybe throw Basin in uh, in your pick fours along with Charlatan, in, unless you want a single. A lot of people will be spreading out in the twelfth, in the thirteenth. I like uh, Farmington Road in Taishan along with Nadal. I would have one ten, maybe four or five in the last race. And so here are the key horses to use throughout the card. Second race, the number one, she's the boss. Fourth race, the number eleven, Bank. Fifth, the number eleven, Endorsed. Sixth, the number seven, Ring of Fire. Ninth, the number eight, Lord Guinness with the the seven rotation. Tenth race, the number twelve, background. Eleventh, the eleven, Basin. Twelfth, the two, Trophy Chaser. And fourteenth, the number ten, Wild About You. Best of luck in closing day on closing day at Oaklawn Park, Saturday, May the second. Let's get you to an interview with Tyler Herringer, good friend of the the show. Um, someone I've known for a long time. We talk a little bit about the NFL draft and a little bit about Sarah Candle Company. Enjoy this interview with Tyler. Very happy to welcome back the head honcho over at Sarah Candle Company, my good friend. I've known uh, since like five years old, Tyler Herringer. Tyler, buddy, thanks for coming back. It's a it's a weird time in the world. How's quarantine life treating you? Quarantine life is uh, is tough. I thought by now, what the Dodgers would be eight games in first place. God, it's like a month. It'd have been a month in on this weekend already. <laughs> yeah. And we'd be watching some NBA playoffs coming up here soon. The Kentucky Derby would be this weekend. It's just a, yeah. it's just a the first weekend in May is usually really fun times and enjoyable. To look forward to now. I You're a hockey fan, right? Day of the week, hockey, yeah. hockey playoffs yeah. too. I don't know if you've seen they do. I've seen them in, in on like one local news station in the, I think it's Ohio or somewhere. They have a statement, a segment on each of their shows where it's like, "What day of the week is it?" And it just goes <laughs> to the person, and he just goes, "Tuesday," and that's Tuesday, like it. Yeah. It's just because nobody. You said it. Nobody knows uh, what's going on, but. I will say just about a few hours uh, before we have we are recording this on Wednesday at about five o'clock Pacific time or so. We I've seen, you know, um, baseball kind of has some plans. The NBA kind of has some plans for getting back, and it looks like a couple of the horse uh, the racetracks have have some plans too um, to try to get back. I think Lone Star in Texas they're going to let horses back on. I think Churchill Downs is going to let horses start and come back on, and even Santa Anita. They are looking like it, they're planning for May the fifteenth to maybe get back open. So. You know, I'm I'm kind of one of the people that's right in the middle. I'm glad that we 
that we are starting to get things back open. I like to see that. I just I think as long as everybody continues to stay safe, you know, with the gloves, the mask, like just keep it safe. It's kind of like with the antibiotics uh, when you get sick, right? They always tell you like, don't you got to finish that whole bottle off, you know, make sure to do that. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think it's a it's a situation where, like you said, it's nice to see things start trending in that direction. It's good to see some of the the tracks, you know, kind of reconsidering things and figuring out a way to open in a safe way. I think, you know, for everything, all things considered, I think Oakland's and the tracks in Florida have done a great job. And yeah, they have. They really have. And and I'm I know they've seen their handles improve tenfold. So it's 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 good for everybody and. And it's it's business at the end of the day. I know I'm sure that a lot of the opponents to it say, well, it's just gambling. Gambling's not essential, but the horses running is essential. Yep. And so um, it's glad to, I'm good to see that you know the tracks are starting to see that, and hopefully Sanita comes around here in the next couple of weeks and they can get running again too. So because there's very few things going on, the NFL draft, which was last week, had the highest rating that it's ever had, ever. And you know what, Tyler, I gotta say, there were a lot of people that were expecting. You know, and I think I might have been too like some technology, um, you know, issues, lapses, like glitches. But for the most part, it was a pretty damn smooth show. The NFL draft. Yeah, I would I would have to agree with that 100. percent I mean, we've all seen over the last month people try to do stuff similar. I mean, obviously not on this grand of a scale, but they said that uh, there was no situation where they had to pause the draft clock. And I thought the uh, ESPN handled it pretty well, and we got a look into Roger Goodell's little basement there and yeah. yeah like you said i think i think everything worked out smoothly you know as smoothly as it could go and uh i mean i'm sure they'd rather do a live draft but under the circumstances i think they did it really well and like you said the ratings were incredible because that was the closest thing we've come to real sports here in what at least a month yeah i think people were excited it gives you a little bit of a sense of a of Coming back, so as a, a football fan, as a, someone who plays fantasy, who doesn't mind, uh, you know, gambling a dollar here or two on on, on some things. W- what did you when you watch this draft? Let's talk about some of the teams that you liked, some of the teams that you didn't. So give me a couple of the teams first um, that you liked. Like who did who did you think did really well with their draft? Who did you who did you feel like hit a home run? Uh, you know, a couple. Uh, I guess a couple honorable mentions is is uh, the Chiefs. Of course, the rich get richer. They They'd got who most people thought was the best catching running back in the yep. draft. So that's uh, just another weapon for them to add there with Mahomes and those wide outs. And so that's a good one. I liked what the Panthers did. That was Matt Rule coming in for the first year. He just picks all defensive players. He knew that the offense, yep. yeah, the offense was great. So he said, you know what? I know where my weakness is. It's on defense. Let's get this defense to be better. We could score a lot of points with McCaffrey and they got Bridgewater. And so I like that move. But the two that kind of stood out to me, and ironically enough, for as much flack as everybody gives Jerry Jones, I thought the Cowboys did really well. Awesome. They got they got CeeDee Lamb at 17. Unbelievable. Which, which is a steal. And they, you put him with Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup. That's a nice little trio of wide receivers there. Then they go and they get Trayvon Diggs, the corner out of, uh, out of Bama. He's a four-star wide receiver recruit out of high school. He's a good ball skill guy. He can do kick returns. That's, that's an excellent pick by them. And then they go get an interior lineman out of Oklahoma – who's just a beast, and then they lose kind of, you know, I guess with the new NFL, it may not be too much of a shock, but they lose their center in Travis Frederick. He retires, and then they just go get this center out of Wisconsin who seems like he'll slip right in there. So it, Perfect one, for them. two, three, four, they just seem like they just, you know, and Jerry, I think a report came out the day before the, 
the draft that he said uh, he sent a memo to all his scouts not to bother him during the draft, and everyone went, <laughs> oh, oh no, here goes Jerry again. But you know, when you sit back and look at everybody they picked, you go, wow, they they really knocked it out of the park. They addressed their needs and they got some steals. And it was funny because I think you, 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 I heard something similar to this. Like he said, "Don't bother him. He's going to be like on his yacht drafting from there or whatever mm-hmm. it was." And it was like, "Oh no, this could get yeah. really out of hand for Dallas." And it was the complete opposite. And you pointed on it too. I think Tyler. Not only did they get the needs to fill, but they just got value all throughout the draft. Like it seemed like every time they were picking, their selection was someone who should have gone like ten to fifteen picks earlier. And so you all, you no matter what, in in the draft is such a you know because we all have our ideas on who drafted well, but then again these guys all have to play well, stay healthy moving forward, right? We know right now what we think, and it could be completely different in a year or two. But you just they they as a Dallas fan, as anyone who's rooting for the team, you have to feel really really happy about yourself and like a real winner the way that they came out of this because they just got value all up and down. Yeah, they really did, and now I guess. Uh... Jerry's got a little bit of the heat off of him. He's got to find a way to still sign his quarterback. But, yep. you know, he's given Mike McCarthy in his first year some pieces to work with. And it'd be uh, interesting to see what they can do here. Because a lot of these guys, they'll be able to plug right in and play. So you have one more team that you uh, you really like what yeah. they did. Yeah, I really I really liked what the Colts did. You know, they, oh, they, took yeah. their first, they took their first round pick and they traded it to the 49ers. But they got it to Forrest Buckner, who... You know, as we've seen him in the pros already and what he can do. And then they go into the second round and they get Michael Pittman, a guy that we've both seen at USC for years and, and really impressed with him at his college days. And I, he's a big physical wide Stud. receiver. You pair, you pair him up with T.Y. Hilton, I think, and you get Phillip Rivers throwing either one of them the ball, you're going to be in good shape there. And then I really like the third round pick. They got the, the running back out of Wisconsin, Taylor, oh, yeah. who I think is one of the better running backs in the draft to get him in the third round. Is just uh, was just a very good pick by them, and then even into the fourth round, they get Jacob Eason, the quarterback who he may just need a little time to develop. They said he's got a really strong arm. He's going to get Frank Reich as his head coach. I mean, I think that's a really good pick too for somebody to sit behind Philip Rivers for maybe a year or two and learn a few things, and maybe he'll end up being a, a, a good solid pro with some of these young guys. It it was one of my favorite drafts too, because it, and you, I love what like you mentioned. You have to mention DeForest Buckner as part of this draft because he's like their first round pick here. So you get a top level defensive lineman, then you go get Michael Pittman Jr. and Tyler. Like if this wasn't such a deep wide receiver class, like any other year, he's a first round pick. Because he's 6'4", he's a stud, he catches everything So you get a guy who's a big time possession receiver for Rivers I mean, this is perfect, he's going to be able to move the chains for you You mentioned Jonathan Taylor, he's a stud running back from Wisconsin um, They compare him a lot to Zeke Elliott So he, between those you know, two plus the Buckner And then you mentioned you, you draft for your future You take a swing with Eason Who gets to develop behind Rivers um, He needs some things to work on And what a great... You know, um, offense. What a great coaching staff with Reich, and, and and what a great leader in Rivers to learn behind. I'm glad you mentioned the Colts, man. They were one of my favorites too. So they really seemed like they hit a home run. So uh, okay, let's get negative now. Uh, <laughs> who 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 did we not like with with uh, what they did in the draft? I I think the glaring one is is the Packers only oh, because yeah. I, I know a lot of people have been beating up on them, but I'm just not sure. You know what what their strategy was there. I don't you know. There's there's rumors coming out now. Is there dissension between Rodgers and coach and does you know? Do they have other ideas? But if you looked at the, if you looked at them the last year, their two best players were Rodgers and Jones, the running back. And then they draft, they trade up and take quarterback. 
and then they draft AJ Dillon in the second round, and it's like you would think they would get some more protection for Rodgers or some more weapons or maybe shore up their defense, but it seemed like they drafted the two positions that they didn't really need. From the from the complete opposite of the team that we just talked about with Indy, like Indy looked like their first few players, at least their first three picks, and then you add Wagner into that, they're all guys that I think they're expecting to step right in and be major contributors right away to their team. And then you look at Green Bay, and it's like they were a team that was in the final four. I mean, they weren't that far off. You feel, you look at them and their roster, and you go, we need some wide receiver help. We probably have a couple holes to fill in a little bit here, maybe on the offensive line, something like that. And instead, you met, they take a backup quarterback, what's probably going to be their third string running back, and someone who wasn't even... Like, if if they took a running back that fell at that point and they're like, hey, this this was just someone who was like too good for us to pass up on here, that's fine. But Dylan wasn't even a really highly projected running back in this class. So not only did they take a weird position, but they reached for the pick at the position also. Um and then they get a couple, you know, offensive linemen in the sixth round that they probably won't even be starting right away. I was reading something that said you know, six of their first seven players on offense might not even play this year. Like that just doesn't seem like it fits with a team that's got a veteran quarterback and is ready to win right now. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 more where it's going. It's like if you're a team like the Colts, where maybe you think you're close and they fill out all their needs and say, "Here we are, we're we're instantly in contenders." And then you have the Packers, like you said, who are who are right there. And Rodgers is he's what thirty five years old. I mean, he's you know he's He's been the best for a while, but he's only got so many years left. You'd think you want to just make one last push, try to get him another Super Bowl, and then they draft a bunch of backups, it seems, and they reach for some guys. Like I said, even in the second round, A.J. Dillon, the Colts got Taylor in the third round, you know, and, you know, who knows? They still got to play the game, still got to get on the field, but it seemed like that, you know, they could have made some better picks there, and, and who knows? Maybe they're looking at different information than the rest of us, but it just didn't seem like they were quite in sync with their expectations and what they needed. And who else did you not like? You know the everyone's everyone's bashing on the on the Eagles. They kind of did the same sort of thing where they picked Jalen Hurts, and you know there's another team that's close to winning. You think they would pick some immediate impact players, and you know like the, like the Chiefs. The Chiefs said, "Hey, you know what? Let's go. Let's get this good running back here at the end of round one and make ourselves even better at coming off of the best season you could have." So that but then the Eagles go and they take Jalen Hurts, and it's like, okay, do they not? Are they not all in on Wentz? Are they? You know what? what what's their what's their plan there? And so they were kind of in the same class to me as the Packers, but the Raiders, I, I was kind of confused on the, you can make, I guess, the argument on rugs. Most people had him as the third best wide receiver. They took him first, but we know the Raiders love speed, but then they took, uh, they traded up and took a corner out of uh, Ohio state, Damon Arnett. And by all accounts, he graded out as an average, maybe low second round, high third round at best. And you trade up for him. Yeah. And it was like a weird, like, you know, even if you thought you really liked him, hey, we're really high on this guy. We're higher on him than everybody else. You could have got him much later, and then they they traded up, you know, to make matters almost worse. And then in the third round, they took the the linebacker out of Clemson, who most people had as a sixth rounder. And so it's you know they're 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 doing more of the reaching too, and you're wondering like you know in the division where the, the Chiefs are the Chiefs, the Chargers had a pretty good draft, the Broncos had a pretty good draft. You know you. You got to be worried here going into your first year at the new stadium. Where where's the identity there with the Raiders and and why they were reaching for guys that most people had graded out much lower? 
Yep, I didn't like either of those teams that you mentioned either. It felt like um, just wrong players in the wrong spots. This didn't seem like a draft that, like, maybe if you're going to move up a pick or two, I'm fine. But I didn't understand almost at any teams that are. this was a deep draft. I don't think you needed to trade to try and, like, move up, like, you know, for a player here and there. The Raiders did it. I saw, we saw the Chargers kind of do it a little later on also. So wasn't a big fan of uh, of the moving up when when you have such a deep, deep draft. So, yeah, we'll we'll have to kinda continue to monitor that, and we'll have to bring you back to talk um, some previews as we get a little bit closer. And you know, it looks like baseball. Hopefully, um, they're aiming for I think uh, end of June, early July to start back up, and they might be the first like actual big league uh, that that gets back playing. So let's get to uh, before we before we send you home. Let's talk a little bit about Sarah Candle Company. What's been new with Sarah Candles? How have things been going? I mean, this seems like a great time for the candles because everybody's sitting in their homes. Everybody stinks. Right, like you know, their exactly. their houses smell a little bit more. People are trying to cook weird things, so you're gonna get some of that weird food smell in the house. Uh, what's new over with Sarah Candle Company? Yeah, it's starting to get warm out here on the uh, on the West Coast. The mm-hmm. kids are all home from school. The the pets are inside. The so yeah, sweat. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. we've seen uh, <laughs> we, we've seen a, a pr- pretty good increase here in the in the sales over the last month or so, and and people are liking the candles. And again, it's an all natural. If you're going to be sitting inside all day, you want to make sure you're burning something that's, uh, you know, it's good and good and healthy for you and healthy for your family. And uh, yeah, so we decided, you know, for Mother's Day and just, you know, to help people out here during these times, you know, we're going to do, uh, we're doing a promotion that's, it's an automatic promotion. You don't have to enter any code. You don't have to do any special offer. If you buy one candle of any size, you're going to get the next candle 33% off. So it's, wow. it's, an e- it's an easy way. It's automatically on the website. You don't have, there's no secrets. There's no tricks. There's no codes. You just go to the website, sarahcandles.com. You buy a candle. The next candle is 33% off. So you'll be able to get two candles of the, the two smallest candles. You'll be able to get two of them and you won't be able to, you won't have to break the bank or anything like that. Even if you want, if you want to get the two of the large ones, boom, 33% off. If you want to get one large, one small, no problem. So we're doing that all the way through Mother's Day. Uh, if you want to, you know, you might not be able to see your mom on Mother's Day. You might be stuck in quarantine. Send her a couple candles. I, you know, she she might like that more than a a bunch of flowers. The candles are going to last you for at least twenty hours each. You know, you can get her a couple candles and that'll cheer her up and keep the house smelling nice. And uh, we're yeah, we're we're just hoping to try to get these into many as many houses as possible and get a little bit of cheer here and during these times when everybody's stuck inside. Okay, I'm I'm a huge fan. My favorite personally is the the fresh roses one. So I know they're like it's like asking a parent which one of their children is their favorite, but which uh wh- give us some of the dealer's choices here. Give us a couple of your personal favorite scents. Yeah, the, the, the from my on my perspective, the Del Mar one's really 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 nice. It's and, great, um, and it's fun too because I think like yeah. you know if you're a racetrack oh, fan, immediately, or so what, yeah, immediately exactly. it's like hey, here's Del Mar, you know. <laughs> Here's Del Mar, and it does not smell like horses or anything like that. It no, no. Like nice day by the beach. Or losing so tickets, a couple... it doesn't smell like those. Yeah, no. No. <laughs> yeah exactly. Like tickets being lit on fire, and no, no burning paper. But that <laughs> one's nice. And then um, uh, we have a, a new one that we – it's a white tea scent. We call it plain white tea. That's a really nice, clean oh, scent. Uh, we have a spring scent that's called Blood Orange. That's a really popular that's, scent, that's and amazing. I really like that one. And then coming out soon, we've actually got a little sneak peek here. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be releasing a brand new scent that's going to be called Sunrise Surf, and that's going to be a really nice, uh, clean little type little scent that's got a little, yeah. yeah, a little summary. And then we've also, on top of that, that'll be a permanent scent, the Sunrise Surf. That'll be coming out soon. That one will be in rotation all year round. And we have uh, probably, hopefully towards the end of May, we'll be releasing our summer scents, and we'll have six new scents 
that'll be for summer. And there'll be all kind of, uh, we've got one that's like a mint mojito. We've got a lime fizz. And, you know, so we'll have those kind of scents coming out in the summer. So we'll have some more. We have the spring scents on sale now. We'll keep those up and then we'll be adding the summer scents. So probably in the next month or so, you can expect about seven or eight new ones. Oh, we, and, uh, we, we look forward to that. We'll be uh, releasing that, all those information here on that. So what G said, every time you got new stuff out, um, new deals, new candles out there, we're going to let the folks know. Um, because man, these are these are my favorite candles by far. I mean, I've been a candle person forever. These ones are awesome. They smell amazing, and they're better for you. It's just like you can you can just I don't know. It's it's it sounds weird, but you can kind of just tell when you're breathing them in. You know, like when 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 you're in there, it's just like it just it it feels good. It feels natural. Yeah. Feels smooth. It kind of feels like the air that we're breathing in now. Uh, how we we've lost a lot of that pollution out here in LA because there's not many as many cars out and about. So, um, Tyler, my man. Anytime you want to come back here and talk some sports, anytime you have any new information for Sarah Candle Company, you just let us know and uh, and we'll bring you on back and and we'll chat. It's always fun to catch up with you. Yeah, that sounds great. Hopefully, uh, we get some sports back going here soon. And uh, I always appreciate you having me on and plugging the candles for me. And give us your uh, give us the information one more time. Where's the website? Where can we get a uh, Where can we find the good stuff? Yes, yeah, Sarah Candles www.sarahcandles.com. That's C E R A for Sarah. SarahCandles.com and then our Instagram handle is at SarahCandles. If you have any questions, you want to try anything out, you have anything at all you want to ask me, you can find me on the Instagram. You can find me at Sarah Candles and uh, yeah, I'll be happy to reach out to anybody and talk to anybody and answer any questions. Tyler Herringer, thanks a lot, buddy. Look forward to talking to you soon. Best of luck with the candles. Thank you very much. You know, you take care. That is Tyler Herringer. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back in just a minute here on That's What G Said. A big thank you to Tyler Herringer for talking a little NFL draft with us. And we'll bring him back hopefully when we have more sports to discuss. Now we're going to close things out with the WrestleMania recap. It's WrestleMania 8, Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali. We go back in time to 1992 and we break down every match, commentary. We set you up with everything going on leading into the show. What happens before, what happens after. Uh, A real fun, real deep Recap of WrestleMania 8. Enjoy. Okay, so now our uh, WWE or WWF, old WWE rewinds, recaps, rewatches. They're going to take us back to 92 for the next couple. Uh, and this one is going to be WrestleMania 8, 1992. Joining me for this one, Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne, the boys, the Italian, the... Uh, Italian boys and the honorary Italian, but he's 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 part of the Italians nowadays. Fellas, how you doing? Great, man. Uh, you know, just still kind of moving through like everybody else. New York continues to be uh, you know, a crazy place, but we're certainly moving in the right direction from a number standpoint. So hopefully there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel here at some point. But uh we're happy, we're healthy. We're DJing in the backyard while drinking champagne. I love so we'll that. Your little good. man looks good. You got DJ D Z and little little Z out there with you also. Is it little Z or Lil Z? The, the <laughs> two are, are vital there. There's a big difference. Yeah, no, it, we're, we're going to go with uh, Tony Z and make it easy on it. There we go. <laughs> All right, there good. we go. Yeah. AC. AC Slater over there. How you doing? Yeah, you're funny. That guy was a jerk. Most <laughs> people on Saved by the Bell were jerks. In fact, the Twitter account a- emphasizing how much of a jerk Zach Morris was, it's life-changing if you really dive back into it and you're like, wait, this was supposed to be the good guy? It's like Hulk Meanwhile, Hogan, right? 
it's like when you some some Hulk Hogan in like the uh, the late eighties, early nineties when he's uh, when he's at his peak, and we're like, hmm, this was the the main baby face. So, well, let uh, me tell you something about Kelly Kapowski, brother. <laughs> when worlds collide, so um, we're not even two minutes in, and I've already gotten a Hulk Hogan impression. And this is going to be a good one. I can feel it. Good. I can tell you, I'm pretty stoked because WrestleMania eight, I really liked watching on the initial time that I saw it many, many, many years later. And I had a lot of fun with it. Although Darren, you tweeted as such, there's some stuff on the rewatch that really stands out and makes you wonder what was going on here. And I imagine we'll get to all of that down the line. But for me, WrestleMania eight may very well have the best first half of any WrestleMania ever. It's I think I agree good. with that. I think I agree with that. And I think I was I mentioned this too, Darren. I think when you look at the roster on this show, I think this is the best roster as far as talent, as far as guys who are big players in the business. When you look at some of the all-time greats, I mean, you can't make a list that's going to go deep w- without a ton of guys on this show. No, for sure. You have, you know, the the veteran guys uh, that are near the end of their WWE runs. You have Savage and Flair and obviously a quote-unquote co-main event. You have Bret Hart. While he's kind of becoming Bret Hart at this point, and everyone is aware of how good he is, uh, Owen, who's a tremendous talent, is on the show, albeit for a minute and a half. We'll talk about that. Uh, Shawn Michaels on the show as well. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, early on, a lot of talent. Uh, Hyper, the roster, you know, the, yeah. Yeah, the roster was just chock full of it at this point. And uh, while there were some things I think we could have been, they could have been done better, and we'll talk about it. Uh, there's no disputing the uh, the amount of talent on this show. And let's not forget Bobby the Brain Heenan. Yes, in peak Bobby the Brain Heenan oh, so form, you can yeah. go in every segment and pick out one line of his that is just gold. I tried to do that. I think I got some really good ones, uh, but it's just awe-striking watching him work and realizing no disrespect intended to any of wrestling's color commentators right now, but everyone's going to be chasing Bobby the Brain Heenan from now until the end of either professional wrestling or the world itself. This is just a fun show, and a lot of... um... A lot of what happened in this show was set up on a Saturday night's main event in February of 1992. This was when Saturday night's main event made the return. I remember watching this one live. I can just totally remember it right here, five years old. And on that show, it was Roddy Piper versus the Mountie for the IC title. Bret Hart cut a promo during the match that he'd said he's going to be facing the winner and getting his rematch. So, um, uh, Piper ends up winning that match. He had a, a shockproof T-shirt underneath, so when they tried to shock him, it didn't it didn't right. work. It was it was pretty fun. And um, they show footage of of the Rumble '92. They show footage of the press conference that we'll talk about a, a couple different times. Um, and then they get that it's the brood. Uh, Jake versus Macho is the main event of the show, and that's actually where the Undertaker turns um, babyface afterwards when Jake tries to attack a Macho after the match. And then Hulk Hogan and Sid have that. Uh, tag team match where uh, it's just the the big moment where Sid ends up turning and walking away and so there's just a ton going on on this one particular episode of Saturday Night's Main Event that sets a lot of things in motion for Wrestlemania because remember guys this was initially supposed to be the Hulk Hogan-Ric Flair match for the title this was supposed to be that big match that we were all 
expecting to see um, when Ric Flair came in. And if you read Dave Meltzer, and I know you you do a lot, Darren, and, and um, you know when we we talk about a lot of things, um, we all expected that it would be Hulk and Flair, and they went right to that at the house shows. But it was it was a different time in wrestling. I guess they went through that for a few months. It did pretty well, but it didn't like not like blow anyone away. And since Sid was around before Flair, it wasn't even like you know the Flair Hogan thing was much of a thought for Vince. This was kind of always what he wanted, right? And, and there was a couple of things going on. You talked about the house show run; it, it did pretty well, but they thought Hogan Flair they thought it would do astronomically well, and yeah, all it time, did, yeah, it it didn't. It did it did well, but it didn't do unbelievable. Two biggest icons. In the history of the sport and maybe their expectations were you know so far gone that it could have never reached them but it didn't do as well as they thought then you had the other issue where hogan is leaving not leaving but kind of leaving yep. at this point i think he's going to start filming thunder in paradise if i if i remember yep. correctly at this point right so if they're doing flair hogan they're not putting the bell on hogan because he's leaving so that might have thrown a monkey wrench into the idea. And remember, we're going to talk about the press conference, but at the press conference, it was originally announced that Hogan was the number one contender. Mm-hmm. And that so was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, Andrew, it's kind of cool how they did this, that this press conference thing. So since the 92 Rumble was for the title, and one day eventually we'll get to that show, which is a great one and a great Heenan show too, where Ric Flair wins the title. It's the first time ever where the, the title was up for grabs in the Royal Rumble. He ends up winning, and so they need to find a new number one contender for the belt to face Rick at, at uh, WrestleMania. So they hold a, a press conference that actually looked pretty legitimate as far as like wrestling press conferences are concerned, and they had all of the top tier wrestlers who kind of had a legitimate claim to being the number one contender. You had Hulk Hogan, who's just like a perennial number one contender. You had Sid, who was the second to last man in the ring, and I guess Hulk was the third to last man. So those two in particular really did. Undertaker was a prior champion not long before this. Macho was a prior champion not long before this. And Piper's your IC champ. So it makes sense who's there. And they announced that Hogan's the winner, but then this is what kind of pissed off Sid. This set things in motion. So um, you know, this was a little bit something different and it was kind of unique and it it, it kind of set everything going in, in for WrestleMania 8 where we had to get these matches flip-flopped. One of the points that we've made a couple of times is when business goes down or even Vince thinks business is going down, he turns to the big guys. Yep. You'll notice Flair Savage for the title buried in the mid-card. You have yep. Hogan and you have Sid, who looks like he was chiseled out of granite and brought to life. Makes sense why Vince thought, oh, this is going to be the main event. Sid is going to wind up being a new big heel for us. Well, of course, that didn't wind up happening because Sid was gone from the WWF very shortly after that. Meanwhile, Flair and Savage have a very, very good match. I will not call it a great match for a couple of reasons that we'll talk about, but that's in the mid card. When that match is over, they did the post-match promos and I paused and I checked the timestamp. We still had more than an hour to go. And it felt like, wait a minute. That was it. It felt like that was it. Like that was a four-star match 
for the biggest belt in the company. All emotional, and too. We've and we've got three or four matches still left to go. It actually fell five. backwards as we watched it later. But you watch the main event, and we'll get to how terrible the main event was. The crowd was hyped. They were. They I were mean, pumped. That main event is one of the biggest examples as to why WWF didn't book for people like us. And to this day, WWE does not book for people like us. If we enjoy their product, it's almost a happy accident at this point. So we get started. It's uh, WrestleMania 8. And we have what they're calling the double main event now. So it's Flair and Savage for the title. Sid and Hogan in what could be Hulk Hogan's last match. It's being billed as maybe Hulk Hogan's last match. There's also all the steroid stuff going on. So Vince is in the midst of, you know... Starting to get away from some of the big guys a little later on this year. There's going to be this crazy uh, steroid testing where like almost half the company fails uh, steroid tests, and they just they really have to change and end up going with Brett. So we get things started, and it's Gorilla and it's Bobby, and Bobby does not waste a moment to just get right into that great Bobby the Brain Heaton character. He's he's looking around. When Gorilla welcomes us in, and he's right away, he's looking around, and he's, what are you looking around for? He says, he's looking around for the centerfolds and the pinup pictures of Elizabeth that Ric Flair, Ric Flair promised, and and we get so many of the, will you stop throughout this show? Gorilla just scolds him again. Uh, they run down the card, um, set us all up, and they toss it to Fink, who introduces Reba McIntyre as she sings the national anthem, um, and... Uh, National Anthem too, not America the Beautiful So we're seeing things changing a little bit too um, As it's been America the Beautiful (laughs) And right away (laughs) um, Before the match Even starts It's uh, El Matador, Tito Santana Versus Shawn Michaels He channels his inner Jesse And he says uh, "Oh, uh, That's Ariba, that's that's Tito's sister, right? A- Ariba McIntyre. And he just is, and Gorilla just, is, you could tell, just like, love it right away. <laughs> so, oh, this, give me a break. This is great. And um, I think, Darren, one of the things I said to you is this, this is a good opener. You know, this is a good opener. We actually saw kind of ironic Tito was the, in the opener of the first WrestleMania. And this is the, his last WrestleMania on TV. He actually is in a dark match the next year at WrestleMania 9. But this is his final one. He opens it again, and he does the job like he did most of the time, too. A lot of times when we saw Tito, he wasn't winning. But always good in the ring, always fun. And I just, I'm so sad that uh, we didn't get to hear Jesse talking about this El Matador gimmick. He would have just eaten this up. You can call him whatever you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... It's a it's a good technically sound match, for the most part. Um, a lot of a lot of headlocks and holds, I thought, which uh, which was a little bit unusual for two guys that could you know work the way they couldn't fly around. But um, you get uh, you know uh, Tito flies over the top and Bobby Heenan goes, oh, it's Air Mexico." You know, I thought that. Was, uh, I I you know the flying jalapeno and the flying burrito. I mean, yeah, he's he's just in right off the bat in quintessential. Uh, Heenan form. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I used to love when, before it became known as the super kick, when Gorilla called it the reverse crescent kick. Yep. I thought that had a nice ring to it when he hit, mm-hmm. when he hit that kick on uh, on Tito. Uh, the one thing that I thought, I thought the finish was awkward. Really weird. Yeah. Yeah, the way he's hanging onto the rope, and he just kind of lands on top of him. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that 
you know, I, I don't know if that was went exactly according to plan, but it just looked like an awkward finish. And you would have thought that the two of these guys would have been capable for a little bit more. And then watching this, I, I almost uh, forgot about it. But the old Shawn Michaels finisher was like this little goofy kind of side suplex thing. Yep. Where, where instead of just taking the guy and putting the arm around your, your neck and, you know, lifting from under the legs, he would he would put his hands like in between the legs and clasp and, and, and pick up that way. It was like a slight variation on a slide su- side suplex, but it used to be his finisher. He went for it. He didn't get it, and he ends up getting that kind of weird win at the end. But you get all of that, and then you know at the end you get something else that you really won't get much more of uh, nowadays when he grabs uh, Sherry's hair and throws her on the ground like in front of him. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh. Uh, I, I, and then also they talk about uh, a Gorilla and Heenan, and they're really starting to push Sean here that he's already challenged the Intercontinental Champion. Uh, and, and you could tell throughout this match the way they're talking, they keep referencing that that Sean's about to get the push that he's going to get. And uh, yeah, I thought it was a good opener, solid, a couple of things here and there, but uh, but a good match. The one thing that I think we need to point out here is Sean wasn't Sean at this point. No, not he yet. Was on his way there, he wasn't a finished product, and that makes sense when you consider that he had spent most of his career to this point in a tag team with Marty Jannetty. He was still sort of finding his feet as a singles guy, and it makes sense for them to put him with a guy like Tito Santana, who could have a good match with any of the three of mm-hmm. us at his, at his prime. This has one of the great Bobby Heenan lines of the show, and there are many. Heenan says something ridiculous. I forget what prompted it, but Gorilla says, I think you should see your Oculus. Heenan hmm. looks at him and goes, there's nothing wrong with my feet. <laughs> Just little things like that that made him seem to himself like a genius and to everyone else like the world's biggest idiot. And you know what? In that situation, everybody was right. That was the genius of the Bobby the Brain Heenan gimmick. And he talked about it in a shoot interview, unfortunately, right before he was diagnosed with throat cancer. But I believe it's still out on YouTube if you want to take a look. It's good stuff. This match, I thought, really picked up in the last five minutes or so. Mm-hmm. It seemed like they were building to a longer match in the first half of it. But then Tito Santana goes into the forearms, and those are over. And both guys start bouncing around. They get a weird finish. It almost seems like Sherry was supposed to help Michaels cheat to Pull win. Pull the legs there. or something, yeah. And it just it didn't come off quite as well as it should have. Had she done the pull of the legs thing, I think it would have gone over better. But... Darren mentioned this after the match. You saw two things. You saw Sean shove Sherry down for the post-match pose. Would never happen today. Should never happen today. But you get a sign, or a shot rather, of a sign in the crowd. And the sign that it, it made me bust up laughing just because of how absurd it was. The sign goes, talk is cheap, so is she. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go back and look for that if you forget that that sign was there it's one of those things that if you tried to bring into a wwe show today they'd confiscate it at the door um okay a couple other things that uh just to mention throughout this match that were uh were interesting so gorilla what an athlete what a gentleman as you mentioned earlier um the ever gallant matador showing us what gallantry is all about when he was (laughs) describing uh, tito santana um and this was early on when, it, as Andrew was mentioning, Sean had just turned heel 
And he just broke up with the rock with the Marty Jannetty of the Rockers. So he's got still the when the music was sung by Sherry, which is kind of fun early in his heel rung before you hear Sean singing his own music. And one thing I thought was interesting. They're talking early on about all the traffic outside, which was kind of weird, you know, like how if you look up and you see empty seats, there's a big wreck outside and there people are having a hard time coming in. That's one of those things that's kind of weird because, first of all, I, I couldn't really tell. It sure looked like there was a ton of people there. And that's just something that's weird to bring attention to. So Vince must have been like really self-conscious about that or something. He must have been like freaking out for, for him to make sure they mentioned that, which was really weird. Gino in the middle of the match where it showed – one of the corners of the upper deck, and it was really empty. And I okay. think maybe, and I he think, must have just, yep, yeah, and, exactly. But then, like, right then, just say because they that was like something that was crazy. And Sean's still a little thick here. It's about like probably ninety four when he kind of starts to find his body, and that's like the Sean that we would we would come to know for the rest. He's still kind of a little, almost like a little baby fat for like ninety two, ninety three, where he's a little a little um, husky. And um, at one point, Bobby says he's talking about Sherry, and he's about to say bimbo, and he just stops himself, which was pretty just another thing that's like you wouldn't be able to say today. Um, well, he had he said that, Sherry would have kicked his butt. Yeah, one thing Sherry had going for her is she could take care of herself in a fight. Um, he said Bobby says that Tito can't speak English. Um, and they do have some history. Remember, we just talked about Mania Six when Tito had that feud with the Barbarian, who was uh, with with Heenan then. And so they had a, they've definitely had some history through the years. He talks about Tito being chased by the Bulls, and um, and then there's the one spot where where Gorilla says he's never seen somebody pinned with a side headlock, and Brain says, "Oh, I've done it." And he says, "What?" He says, "Yeah, I can pull. I can pin a man a million different ways." He said, "Sometimes, uh, one time, I had somebody give up during the intro, <laughs> and Gorilla's just, you know, just having none of it." So Bobby is just firing right out tonight. Um, he gets hit with the the side crescent kick, as Darren mentioned, and Bobby says it's only Menudo for Tito tonight. And then he goes with the jalapeno, the burrito. Sean starts bumping, and at the very end, which was really cool. And it, I mean, you, you got to think about it, right? We're looking at this back, so we know Shawn Michaels is one of the all-time greats. But as we had said, at this point, he wasn't Shawn yet, and Heenan calls him the star of the '90s, which was really crazy. You know, it's like it kind of gives you a little goosebumps to, you know, what what had happened for him following this. So, um, kind of a big start for Shawn Michaels to get the win. As we, uh, I remember as a kid, this next part just always fast forwarding through this LOD <laughs> from a thing. This just, this was okay. You know, you get Paul Ellering coming back, he's returned, but it was just kind of boring, kind of long, kind of plotting. They needed to get LOD on the show, they wanted to get a pop for them. They got a good response here, but it just felt like it was just dragging and dragging and dragging here. And I mean, if you were a kid, if you're me and you're like five years old, we don't know who the hell Paul Ellering is. He's never really been in WWF with the with the Legion of Doom. No, yeah, no, that's entirely true. And Ellering's, you know, little shtick here is a little weird, and the way he's talking and everything, it it doesn't really hit home. Um, LOD's on the show it like this because Hawk had a, a drug test that he failed, which is why they had to take the belts off them at a house show and give them the money incorporated. There is one part of this promo though that I really like, and it's in Hawk's promo. Where he he talks about LOD being a runaway train, and he's like, we, <laughs> and he looks at Ginny, goes, scary, huh? <laughs> now look who's driving the train. I thought that was like 
great. It's line. good. Yeah, it is. It's good. Yeah. Like if, if the promo would have been like a minute and a half long around that, it would have been cool because that that was one of my favorite Hawk lines of all time. Yeah, they each talked, but then they each talked again. It's like if right. they would each had their little thirty seconds. You know, or you know, or th- whatever. Gonna get you talk, introduce him, then give it to Hawk, give it to Animal, and then say goodbye. Boom! But it was like they each got it, and then they went back again, and then kind of it just it dragged a little too long. What do you think, Andrew? Uh, I agree with Darren one hundred percent. The biggest thing with the Road Warriors, the Legion of Doom, whatever you want to call them, less is more with those guys. You play their music, they come out with the shoulder pads, they get the Road Warrior pop, they guzzle guys, they leave. That's their shtick, and they did that as well or better than just about any tag team in the history of professional wrestling. Had this been a two-minute promo with those three guys doing their greatest hits and Gene reacting to it, it would have been fine. But as it stands now, for me, the most memorable part of that promo was Bobby Heenan yelling into his headset, strange-looking people, Monsoon! (laughs) And it's Ugh. just it's it, it's not a bad promo, but Paul Ellering stuff feels forced. Animal was never a great promo. Dirty little secret there. His big thing was literally get in, get out, tell him Hawk, and then Hawk well. the work. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, this would lead to the run with the Legion of Doom and Rocco. Yep. This was the first promo on the road to Rocco. So take that for whatever you will. If you don't know what we're talking about, don't research it. You will be so much better off. (laughs) So uh, um, we then get to the setup for the Jake Undertaker match. So recently, the Undertaker is now, he's a good guy. And remember, at the end of 91, he's got the title He beat Hogan, and then he loses it right back So there's the whole controversy That's initially why the title is up for grabs At the Royal Rumble It gets stripped after they go back and forth Flair helps the Undertaker cheat to win um, Hogan gets it back Cheating And so, you know, the Taker has recently just turned Babyface And Jake is Really good in this heel role He comes off of that feud with uh, with Savage Where he had the snake going with Savage And he He's got the uh, the trust me at the beginning of his music, which is awesome. And he cuts a promo here with Sean Mooney, and he says the biggest man doesn't always win, the strongest man doesn't always win, but the smartest man, the coldest man wins. And he talks over footage of him attacking the Undertaker in the funeral parlor, him, him slamming Taker's hand into the casket, him DDTing Paul Bear, which we did not ever see Paul Bear, you know, get touched at, at that point. Which was really big I mean this was a It felt like this feud went on for a hell of a lot longer than it did Because I remember as a kid like remembering a lot about this And the funeral parlor and all the stuff with Paul Bear And Jake here but It didn't go on long but This was two guys that were That were really really good And one of my favorite things Darren uh, Before even the match starts Is when Jake comes into the ring And he sits in the corner and he pulls himself up Just a little bit a little bit different You know um, so where, where did you uh, go with this match? Yeah, so uh, I, I like the line where he used where he said it's going to be a short ride with a bad landing. I like that one. Too. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the cool things about this, so now for the first time, Undertaker's a baby face. Mm-hmm. The thing for me that is really interesting is that four months ago, this is the guy with the help of Ric Flair 
that tombstoned the icon of the industry onto his wheelchair. <laughs> Four months before this match. How quickly it changes. be a bigger heel than that moment. I mean, think about it. In the history of pro wrestling, what? how could you be a bigger heel than tombstoning the icon franchise, whatever you want to call Hogan of WWE, onto a steel chair? And he was and just, just a scary dude. On top yeah. of that, too. He just scared the hell out of people, you know. Just like that, because he stops uh, Jake from going after Savage with a, with a chair. Snap the fingers. Boom. He's now a baby face when, when Bearer takes the DDT. And, and he's trapped with his hand in the, in the coffin. That's it. Just like that, he's a baby face. I thought that was crazy. This was a real passing of the torch moment in a number of different ways. Uh, first of all, and arguably the most significant thing that we will do on this show, I would like to pause for a moment of silence in memory of Sean Mooney's mullet. <laughs> You're not being silent, Gino. You're laughing too hard. Okay, that's enough. But Mooney was talking to Jake Roberts backstage. Roberts cuts that great promo. Roberts is leaving. He's going to WCW for a lot, a lot a lot of money. Now, his last task is to put over the Undertaker at WrestleMania. He does that. Taker looks so good here. Roberts takes everything, and Taker looks like a killer because very few finishers in professional wrestling were as protected as Jake Roberts' DDT. Mm -hmm. Taker sits up not once, but twice. Choke slams Jake. Tombstones him on the floor. Taker wins. Looks like a badass. And Roberts, you'd think, is onto a giant payday in WCW. Well, he goes to WCW, and the second he walks in, the guy that signed him to the contract gets fired. <laughs> in comes Bill Watts, and all of a sudden, Jake Roberts gets a gigantic pay cut. His timing could not have been worse. It's a fascinating story, one of many in Jake Roberts' career. This one, not nearly as sorted as his You Got 21, I Got 22 promo that he would cut. But it's just, it's a sign of the times for sure. Roberts going to WCW and Taker going on to being The Undertaker. And, and one thing I wanted to point out in the match, uh, The Undertaker from one year removed from WrestleMania 7, in the ring, so much slower. So much more deliberate in what he's doing. It's noticeable that he has slowed down his actions a ton to be more in sync with the character. Sure, you get the flying, you know, the flying clothesline, and you get a couple of things here and there where you get a rapid, quick move. But everything else that he does from the entrance the rest of the way is slow, is deliberate. Uh, I love when you get when when Heenan thinks that that the match is over and Jake's gonna win. He starts going. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> uh, you know, and then and then from that point on, you talk about, you know, two announcers that collectively are pushing the guy. He's not human. Nobody gets up from this. Who's going to beat this guy? He's not even alive. Like the whole thing is about elevating the undertaker and, and everybody involved does a tremendous job in getting him over here. Before we move on, my Heenan line from the match comes right at the start. Look at those two. 
they're normal. They're all right. <laughs> and there were a couple of matches on this show where Heenan just goes out of his way to bash both guys. And we're going to be coming up on another one right about now. Yeah, there's there's two other lines that he uh, he talks about. The Undertaker takes his vacations where the, where the monsters live and said, yeah, in fact, he might be Lurch. And then uh, <laughs> Heenan goes, what's that smell? And Gorilla goes, <laughs> I think it's formaldehyde, and he said, I thought it was your cologne. And then right before, too, in that great promo, the one line I forgot to mention, too, that he, he ends with, simple foreplay. This is Jake. When the time yes. comes, I hook the head and drive him through the mat. I will put the final nail in your own coffin. Trust me. And uh, he... He is on offense early. He knocks Taker outside. They battle for a while. And it's great because Bobby just seems scared of Taker. Another one, he says, death never takes a holiday. Um, it's it's weird when you look back and you think about it. This is the – and it, this is only, you know, a six-minute and 37-minute match, a uh, six-minute, 37-second match. It's good, though. And it, it's it's exactly what it needs to be. You both of these guys doing their hits. Jake puts a, puts the Taker over. This is a big win. For the Undertaker, because Jake was really a, like a big name at this point too. Is this is the best Undertaker match at WrestleMania till when? Like you know, is Kane? Are we talking Diesel? You know, Diesel Diesel ninety six is pretty good, right? Yeah. And then Kane after that, because this one's definitely better. Definitely better than the first one, which is just a snooker. You know, not not a whole lot. Definitely better than Giant Gonzalez. And then we get Bundy after that. Diesel would be in the mix. Maybe Kane. Uh, the the Sid one. No, this is definitely more fun than that, and and better because it's just a little shorter and it's got a good story. So this is one of his better matches for a while until we saw Darren the character change, which you've pointed out a few times, right? Like this this point isn't the in ring working Undertaker. This is. The, the dead man Undertaker which he figured out After kind of losing the character Here and there in spots in, when we saw him In 91 when he was still figuring this guy out Yeah And and you know we talked about the fact that he's uh, and, and he did on, on the Broken Skull sessions with Austin where he talked about how Back then he had to Tell himself to slow down And, he, and if you watch thinking that as you're watching The match you can actually see that happening This is he's now a year Removed from that and he's just trained himself to slow down the minute the second after a move is over whether it's a whip whether it's a clothesline even a punch he just kind of stops for like three seconds before he does anything else and it just it speaks to the character and and it's why he becomes one of the greatest characters if not the greatest character in wrestling history constantly reinventing himself constantly adjusting constantly adapting to what the people want him to be and uh, he's brilliant at it, and he was brilliant at it from the beginning. And his reward for that character development up to WrestleMania 8 was Giant Gonzalez <laughs> in WrestleMania 9. And Who says people don't get their just reward? And you're welcome that uh, I didn't uh, I didn't make you guys sit through that one. That one I would have boycotted. That Jason and Beam wanted to, wanted to go through, so we went back. And you know what, though? I will say, some it, it's not... Long and sometimes the really bad ones are kind of fun, is, is for the same reason when you would watch a really bad movie. It's just kind of like you, you watch it to laugh at it, and uh, and it's not nearly as good as this mania, though. And we got a great start to this mania because the first two matches were solid, and then we kick off one of my personal favorite matches, too. Right? This isn't quite a five star match, but this is this is basically everything that I want personally in my wrestling matches. It's good work in the ring. 
There's a, a, a little storyline with it A little bit of emotion And we have Brett the Hitman Hart versus Rowdy Roddy Piper I loved I remember loving Their little interaction in their promo Back and forth before the match started Where Piper's kind of playing like The older brother you know he, he grew up around the Hart family He was there so he knows Brett He knows the family He's a, He's making fun of him he says he remembers when they were changing the potty bags He's kind of picking on Brett playfully And then Brett interrupts him Things start to heat up, they do a little back and forth This was my favorite Version of Piper The ninety, the late 91 to 92 Piper, this one right here who was kind of The more the more veteran Piper, I like the stuff that he was do, He did with Flair towards the end of 91 I liked him in you know, early 92 And the Rumble and the stuff he did up, up to this And then he was gone um, you know, he, he showed up at SummerSlam, but he he wasn't wrestling. He didn't show back up in, in WWF at the time until what ninety four when he was the uh, the the ref at, uh, at at WrestleMania. So it's crazy how many of the big name guys are gone after the show, are like which is which, which is crazy, right? So like when we go when we think about it real quick, like before we even move on, we've got um, Hogan's gone till Mania nine. Yep. After this, we got Sid is gone, Piper's yep. gone. Jake's gone Right there, boom, I mean That's crazy, right after this show So, um, this was just The the Piper that I loved, he's great in so many In in all the different versions, but he just was He was good here, I liked him and he wasn't He, he was I think his ego was, was not quite the same Ego that it was in like the early to mid 80s, so he was willing to Put someone over here like Brett Because what, what, I think a lot of people probably Don't even remember or think to realize Roddy Piper did not get pinned a whole lot like he did not get beat clean So him losing in this match and getting put on the mat For the 1-2-3 We just didn't see this a whole heck of a lot A lot of his matches would end in DQs right, In count outs Where it would just kind of be a schmoz And he'd kind of get, get his heat back at the end Whether he was the heel or the face So there was, there was a lot that happened in this match I absolutely love it and um, right before they start, Gorilla says, uh, Brain says something he didn't know. And Gorilla says, You don't know a lot for a broadcast journalist. Brain says, He didn't care to find out. So he just didn't care. Um, th- this is great, Darren. I know we've mentioned before that this is one that you like too, but it's one of my all time favorites and um, lots, to go- lots to talk about in this match, um, you know, from right from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I love the promo. I love the way they set it up. I love how angry they get. I love Piper at the end. When Hitman has to walk down the aisle, bye bye, bye bye. <laughs> she be mine. Like it's just, it's just yeah. great. Uh, I used to love when when Brent rocked the all pink. I thought it was oh, it was good. This is a good look. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you got the pushing back and forth. You got the spitting in each other's faces. Um, you got Brett playing paying uh, possum right from the beginning when he when he fakes that shoulder injury off the drop kick, tries to roll him up for a quick pin. Piper gets pissed, slaps him right across the face. Um, there's there's actually one kind of bad spot where Piper and Brett, they kind of do like this double clothesline thing and go over the top. And when I'm watching it, it's the time where you could actually see Brett. He gets the, uh, he gets the blade out. And if you watch closely, it's on the floor. He's got his hands out. And it's when he takes the blade out to do, to do the blade job. Now, he didn't do it just yet. It happens a little bit later. But it, it's kind of right there on camera, and I'm surprised. I know that they got some heat for it, but the word was that Brett convinced them that it was a, it was one of those short punches that actually just caught mm-hmm. him in the yeah. But if you watch closely, you, you could see, see Brett. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, so, you know, you get Brett busted open there. Um, he plays possum again later when Piper tries to go to the top rope, and all of a sudden Brett pops up and, and goes and gets him. Um, and then you get that run of, of Brett moves, the inverted atomic drop, the snap suplex, you know, the reverse neck breaker or side uh, back breaker, all the things that he liked to do. You get a big ref bump, and then you get Piper going out to get the ring bell. And now you get Heenan, I like it. Hit him with it. Use it, you know. And then when he doesn't mm-hmm. use it, you know, he starts basically calling, uh, calling Piper a chicken and stuff like that. Now, the one weird thing about the finish for me, and you're right, because I used to talk to my friends about this. Other than this match, I cannot even remember one other time that Piper took a pin. I can't. Yeah. I, I can't. I mean, I'm sure there's a match. I, I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, but when he gets the sleeper on him and Brett does the cool move where he climbs up the turnbuckles and flips over, it is a slow three count. It is. Piper's just like laying there. Sitting, yeah. And He's doing I, nothing. If you watch the end of the match, it's like Piper gets up and, and he almost looks like he's kind of confused. And like he's looking towards the ref and the ring announcer, like like almost like who won the match. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's what they were going for. I don't know if, if, if they were like trying to make that the outcome. But that's that's my only gripe with the match is that the finish for me is a little bit off because it's a really slow three count. And Piper just lays there without even like struggling at all to get out from it. Well, Other- and Brett does the same finish in '96 Survivor Series with Steve, uh, with Steve Austin, and it's it's much better. It, it he it's like he he's kind of learned from it a little bit more there. But but yeah, I agree. It's it's, it's a little it's a little sloppy. He's kind of stuck, but he's not like moving a whole lot. Um, Andrew, take us away. Okay, first of all, curse you, Gino, because I was going to go down the this is my favorite version of Roddy Piper route because of everything that happened from January onward. He wins the Intercontinental title. He gets a long run in the Rumble. Remember, Flair has cleared the ring. Davey Boy, I believe, was the last one that he threw out. Heenan's going crazy saying, he's the champion, he's the champion, he's it, whatever. Buzzer goes off. Piper comes flying out like a madman. So great. He goes on to the final four, whatever he gets. He cuts a great promo too at the rumble. Like, and he, I think right after he won the IC title and he says, you know, I showed up today with no belts. I'm coming out with two belts. He's all crazy. All pumped. It's really fun. Yeah. When you get Roddy Piper with the blood flowing and whatever else may or may not have been in his system. Yeah. (laughs) It winds up being tremendous stuff more often than not. And the dynamic he and Brett had, you could tell there was something deeper there than what you saw on the television screen. They did an angle where Brett and Piper were teasing, going at each other. They fight other people off. They square up and Brett looks at him and goes, I'd have got you. And Piper has a handful of brass knuckles and says, no, you wouldn't have. (laughs) It was so cool. And Brett had more technically sound matches with other guys. Owen, Austin, pick any major worker you want. Sean at WrestleMania 12, whatever. This is my favorite Bret Hart match. You look at it, and it feels like a big fight from the word go. The crowd has filled in. The fans are into it. The crowd is hyped for this. Now, Piper was a huge name, obviously, But people realized, hey, 
this Brett guy is going to be around for a while. They do the square up before the match, and you hear Heenan yell, two ugly people looking at each other. That's fun. (laughs) And you just sense Heenan is miserable because the crowd loves both of these guys, and you don't know what direction it's going to go. Piper never had the reputation of being the most technically sound worker. He never had to be. There's a spot in this match where they tell a story based on a wrist lock. Oh, it's so good. For a minute and a half, two minutes. And that's one of those situations where it takes two to tango. He's running around trying to get out of it. It's so good. And it's just a simple wrist lock. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Brett Goldbricks, in the words of Bobby Heenan, um, bleeds a lot. Now, he might have gotten into a little bit of trouble for that. There's another guy that gets into even worse trouble for it later. And Darren, (laughs) you mentioned the blade job being obvious here. It was so much more obvious later in the show, and we'll get there. Now, Darren, I'm a little disappointed in you, and I need to call you out on this. Because when you mentioned Bobby Heenan's uh, behavior after Piper grabbed the ring bell, you neglected the six greatest words ever said by a wrestling commentator. What the hell? Use the bell. (laughs) (laughs) So nobody wants Piper to use the bell and win it that way. The crowd comes unglued. Piper's moral compass gets the better of him. He throws the belt out of the ring. They do that finish, and it's a little bit awkward, but I get why. Piper never did jobs. This was a way to protect him a little bit. He lost absolutely nothing the way that that played out, and the fact that Bret Hart was Bret Hart and had the respect to everybody in the back and was a worker's worker, you had to think that was one of the reasons Piper didn't mind doing the job for him and giving Bret a push as Piper went on to do some other things. This might have been the time where he went and acted in some B-movies. I don't know. But as Gino mentioned, we didn't see him again on a consistent basis for another couple of years. Now, we go from this, which appealed to precisely everyone, okay? If you liked really good wrestling, check. If you like big name guys, check. If you like storytelling, check. We go from this to what is arguably, and I say this because Vince McMahon has run the XFL into the ground twice. This might have been an even worse idea. And Gino, I will let you set the stage for it. It's your show, but I needed to provide the exposition for that because I was watching this as it went down And I was asking myself, who precisely is this supposed to appeal to? This was bad. We're going to get to the Lex Luger promo. I have a couple little points I want to mention, just Bobby-isms that we we always have to mention. He said if he was the hitman, he'd have the agent buy the belt for him right off the bat. And then we got a good good one that said he'd waffle him outside with a tire iron, which is just a great one. And then... um, he, Bobby says, you know, I remember when I was champion and Gorilla says, of what? He says, of the neighborhood, <laughs> you know, just like so like matter of factly, you know, like just just some really good stuff and um, a match that we all absolutely love leading us into a segment that nobody loves as Andrew led us to. This is Bobby the Brain introducing Lex Luger, the newest member of the WBF the World Bodybuilding Foundation, which was one of Vince's new projects. And he he had Lex Luger kind of uh, debut here 
to as he was going to be someone who was kind of doing both, wrestled and was also part of this, and he figured it would kind of draw um, interest into that. And let this this interview after you've just had like the best opening the half of WrestleMania, as Andrew alluded to earlier, that we that we I think we still have maybe ever seen. I mean, there's some good ones, good starts, but this at this point, WrestleMania eight, we've never had a better first half of a show yet, where we've had like four. What three, four matches, and they've all been really solid and and good segments, and nothing down. And then we get this, and I mean, it's Lex Luger, and he is just huge at this point. I mean, oh my goodness, he's he's jacked up. But it's it's awkward. Lex was never really a promo, so it's like you're what we let what the th- the important part about Lex and, and what's impressive about him is his physique, right? And they try to get him out there and show the physique a little bit, but just having him talking for a couple minutes and going back and forth, he's trying to be the snarky heel. Bobby's kind of oozing all over him. This just this felt really out of place. This felt felt like something that you would do on superstars. Like it just it didn't need to be right in the middle of WrestleMania. I guess it shows you what a big deal that they thought Luger was and what Vince wanted to do with this WBF, which did not go on long. But he's like he's name dropping weightlifters. Like any per does anybody know any of the names of any of the people he's mentioning? Like really? It's just this was out of touch. Yeah, I thought about googling the names just to find out, but then if they I didn't were real. To... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then I, I just didn't want to even bother to put the time in. Um, <laughs> I remember watching. I was watching this with my dad, and after this match, I, I went up to to get, get a snack. I was so pumped. I was a big Brett guy. I was happy he won. And then I hear my dad yell out to me, "Darren, who the hell's this guy?" Because he he watched the WWF stuff with me, but he never watched any NWA WCW stuff. So I go in and I look and I'm like, that's Lex Luger. Like, what? what? Like, I was so good because back then you're, you know, I was what eight years old. I didn't, you know, you don't know about all the stuff going on behind the scenes. And I'm like, I don't understand. He's a, he's a WCW guy. Like, like it was, so I had that kind of cool moment where you're like, and then you like sit there and you watch and he drinks the milk and all the, like the girl brings in the milk on a tray, you know, talk about nutrition. Like, okay, you're going to watch you actually, Guzzle a glass of milk now. Um, you know, they kind of lay the groundwork. I don't even know if it's on purpose, but I'll, I'll, I'll even go so far as that they accidentally lay the groundwork for the narcissist character. Yeah, no, you're right. You know what I mean? Because he's just talking about how just unbelievably awesome he is at life and like how, you know, chest, traps, arms, necks, you know, the whole thing, you know, flexing for you and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, the only the, the cool thing I liked is that he called himself the total package, and then he comes to WWE and he's never the total package again. Never, never. <laughs> like I mean, total package was a cool nickname, you know. I mean, if you talk about Luger, two things that he had going well, three things he had going for him. He had the look, he had a cool nickname in the total package, and he had the uh, the torture rack, which was a really cool finisher. But you come to WWE, you don't get the total package, and you don't get the torture rack. You get Luger painted red, white, and blue eventually. Um, but yeah, it's just. It's weird, it's awkward, it's kind of goofy, and it, like you said, it looked like a belong on like WWF Challenge on a Sunday morning. I'm going to echo the same thing that I mentioned right at the outset. Who was this supposed to appeal to? And you wonder what the aim and the objective was of this, especially at a time when Vince McMahon was going to be under the spotlight for all of the wrong reasons 
based on what some of his employees were doing. So what do you do? Well, gee, instead of instituting a strict drug testing program, instead of making sure you have a clean ship, we're going to try out a whole bunch of guys that look like they travel with a pharmacy in their suitcase. This just didn't make any sense. And you had a guy in Lex Luger who we've discussed. I'm not the world's biggest fan of Lex Luger for a bunch of reasons. People thought he was a main event guy, and it just never really took outside of a brief run with WCW. But this is the best way you use him? And it just, it it stunk to high heaven. And it was one of those things where it almost seemed like having to eat your vegetables with dinner, like you've had this tremendous steak and the potatoes, okay, now you have to eat something you really don't like just to get to the rest of the stuff. It was, it was rotten. And that's about all we can say about it. The very end, Gorilla says, Brain, you found someone more conceited than you are. Bobby says, Thank you, Gorilla. Um, the next thing was a little more fun than I remembered. Not necessarily the match here, but I mean, really sad because I I ended up you know relooking everything into Ray Combs um, after this, and Ray Combs, who um, oh, first we get the, the Nasty Boys, the Mountie, the Repo Man in the locker room. Um, they're the bad guys in this eight man tag, and then we get a promo with their opponents, so, um, the good guys, um, Slaughter, Virgil, Hacksaw. And uh, who am I missing? Slaughter, Virgil, Hacksaw, and uh, I can't. Oh, um, hold on. I'll I'll pick it up right now. And nonetheless, oh. there we go. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Um. So what what was sad about this is that you know Ray Combs was really funny, and Ray Combs was the host of Family Feud at this time when they did a reboot to Family Feud, and so at this point. Family Feud was really popular. It was huge. They're, they actually were doing so well that there were two different Family Feuds. There was one in the, in, in the day, and then there was a night um, version. He got a huge contract. He was a comedian, and um, and he got the deal for Family Feud. And then, unfortunately, you know, he does a he's hilarious in this. He does a great job, like just um, you know, bad mouthing the heels, introducing everyone. It's quick, but he's he's sharp. The way he he he's got great timing and stuff. You could tell he he's really funny. He's got a good personality, and it just it's very sad because um, I think four years later he ends up committing suicide. And if you you know if you ever look into him, it's just really really sad the way things went when they. The Family Feud show started to kind of tail off and was not getting the ratings that they needed. They ended up bringing Richard Dawson back in to host, and it like it just mentally it didn't sit very well with him. He ended up losing uh, his wife, like divorced him, and then he got real, real sad. So it's just sad stuff. It, it's hard sometimes when you you see these matches and they're, they're fun or there's something going on, and then we know that the the sad endings for a lot of these people. But uh, just to spin it back, he was funny here. I mean, he was he was really funny. He introduces the eight man tags. He said feuds are his business. He said he asked and he surveyed the crowd. And the Mountie doesn't know the meaning of the word fear. In fact, there are a lot of words he doesn't know the meaning of. <laughs> and he uh, he says as a law enforcement officer, he does the work of three men: Curly, Larry, and Mo. Uh, then he starts ripping the Repo Man, who we know Repo Man as a former member of Demolition. He was Smash, correct? Smash from Demolition. Yes, I think? he was Smash. Yeah, and um. Uh, he said 100 people said no one can call him two-faced Because if they were, if he was, he'd be damn sure wearing the other face right now uh, They booed his childhood, his parents were disappointed because they wanted a boy And then the, the nasty boys, two men sharing one brain When it comes to their success in wrestling, there's only one word 
lucky and the heels are playing it off great they're getting all upset and and he's doing a, a really fun job with this and this is just literally like a cooldown match i think we have another cooldown match after um a little later but this is you know right after the big emotional brett piper match to get these guys all on the uh, the show what i like about this darren is that in like Russ in you know 88 89 maybe even 90 they might have had three or four matches out of this feud instead it was like hey none of this is really that important let's just put all these guys together we can get them all on the show they can get their spots in have fun baby faces win get the crowd happy and then get out of there yeah kind of kind of a weird spot to see the nasty boys in um mm-hmm. you know they the titles were, the year before yeah exactly they won the titles the year before uh they had the big match with lod at SummerSlam the year before as well um but, you know, they had that kind of feud going with Bossman and Duggan leading up to this. So I guess they just kind of uh, compounded on that. You know, you talked about the line that he used on Repo Man. And, you know, the line was meant to be, uh, you know, they talk about a guy being two-faced. But, you know, if he had his choice, he'd be wearing the other face, you know, implying how ugly he is. But I'm listening to that. And I'm saying the irony in that and the fact that he's a guy – that the year before was a part of one of the biggest right. tag WWF history. And if he had his choice of which face he would be, it would be the other one. And I'm like listening to that and saying, how funny is it? Because that also applies to if you gave him the choice of which character he would be in the ring, he would pick the other character that he was and not the repo. <laughs> So I thought that that was kind of, you know, funny how like you, you like Shakespearean or something, right? Yeah. 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 You know, and obviously, you know, I mean, he has no idea that Repo Man is smash. I'm sure that that was meant to mean that he was ugly, but it was just funny that the way it went out. But yeah, fun little match. Boss Man gets his big punches in. Um, you know, you get a couple of melees, a couple of wild finishes. Uh, you know, the guy, the good guys go over a little bit of a cool down match. Um, you know, Virgil with the face guard and all that stuff. But, yeah, just a fun little match. I mean, nothing really crazy to say about it. Okay. Thank goodness for Hacksaw Jim Duggan doing things that make no sense. Oh. So they start the match, whatnot. It settles down. And Hacksaw on the ring apron starts a USA chant. Here's the problem. Both guys. It's not in Toronto. the ring. We're from the United States of America. <laughs> they had the Mountie on the other side of the ring. Wait until that guy tags in. <laughs> then do the USA chant. It's not complicated. I mean, he's like a mistake. kid with a toy. You know, like he just knows that USA chant's going to get some love and he just wants to drop it as much as he can. <laughs> and you know what? Hacksaw Jim Duggan got a 20 some odd year career out of those three letters and a two by four. More power to him for that. But it just made no sense, and it made me laugh while I was watching it. This match wasn't anything special. But one thing I will say about it, and Gino, it goes to a point that you had, is it was a case where instead of making two, three, four matches out of this, they made one big match, got everybody on the card, everybody got their offense in in some way, shape, or form. Everybody got a spot. It wasn't great, but it wasn't great, and it was quick. This was a good way to get everybody on the card for a seven, eight minute match. Give them some promo time for what it was. It was totally fine. Something yeah, there's, there's one thing 
I was I was I was gonna leave it to Andrew because he's so good at picking up the uh, you know the lines from Heenan and Monsoon, but he didn't say them, so I'll say them. There were three things that were said here. I think it's the first time that Heenan announces. Up, oh, I just received word, Monsoon. Sean Michaels, Michaels has, has left the building. building. Who cares? <laughs> I think this was the first time that he ever did too. that. I think so. Yeah. Um, Monsoon, when Duggan gets in trouble, says. Oh, I guess he gave out one too many hoes. <laughs> he did that. Was great. I, mean, I had that one written. One too many hoes for that guy. Keenan <laughs> and, and starts. I, I think he's railing on Newark, New Jersey. At one oh, point. it was great. <laughs> he called Newark, New Jersey a foreign country. Now, what I'm going to say here is having been to Newark, New Jersey, he's not wrong. <laughs> Yeah, this this was fun. This was one of those that it's like it, it was it wasn't painful in um, and the the fun intro and then the the fun Heenan commentary was good and like you, like this is one of those matches that because it's only you know six and a half minutes long everybody can go quick. They know they're only going to be in the ring real quick. They keep it up at a, at a good pace. It's not like it's slow with rest holds. It's just in and out tags, fun guys hitting their big spots, and that's uh, and that's it. As we get set, oh real quick. Virgil gets a pin. We don't see that too often, huh? How about that? Virgil, nobody knew who the legal man was at the end. And uh, and Virgil with the W. Good job, Virg. Um, now we get the setup for the real main event of this show, which was Ric Flair versus the Macho Man. So Sean Mooney, mullet list, was with uh, Flair and Perfect backstage. And uh, they have like a poster and they're teasing that it's a picture of Miss Elizabeth. Um, Flair says that women are lined up down the block to take a shot at Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect. Uh, he says Liz has one more shot at Space Mountain. And um, and then Mean Gene tries to get a word with Macho Man, but he's fuming right now. So Mean Gene can't get a word with him. And we get to Macho Man versus Flair. And from the start of this match, I love it because Liz is not with uh, Macho Man. And this was this was a, a, a match that they did a good job building this feud pretty quickly and getting a storyline into it because remember, we're talking not long before this were the the plans that we as fans all think is that it's gonna be Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan and for the title. And so the Macho Man's coming off that really good feud with Jake the Snake. He's hot, the people are invested in him. So they put Macho Man in this spot and um, they they end up you know doing the uh, the angle with Liz and Ric Flair talks about how he used to date Liz and he's got pictures of Liz and this and that and Macho Man I love it he just he's running to the ring right away we don't see that a lot of times especially nowadays there's supposed to be a big feud or a, or a blow off and and then somebody kind of comes out and they do their pose and they walk slowly to the ring like I want you to be pissed and you want to beat someone up and that's what that's what happened here with Macho Man this was a match that was like. Much different than like any matches from WWF at this time were you know, and I say that with the blood, which we saw blood earlier just right before this, but with the blood, with it was a little longer, it was like a play, there were like multiple acts to it. There are a lot of things going on, but the work rate was still really good. And this is this is a good, good, intense match. Um, you know, Macho immediately after Flair, he jumps over the ropes I loved when he would fly from, from the inside to the outside of the ring He was so good he made it I've never seen anyone like 
hop over the ropes and onto the floor and made it seem like he it was like nothing like macho he was just so comfortable doing it and he he gets attacked by perfect it gives flair a chance to get back in the ring and it's just a super intense start savage is enraged flair backdrops him over the top rope and then flair's in control for a while and bobby starts to scream um show me the pictures man show me the pictures and then uh Brain wonders who Liz is going home with She's not at ringside quite yet uh, Flair continues to maintain the advantage For a while And and then Brain starts to get really flustered he, he's, he's standing up now And uh, as Flair continues to work on Savage Outside the ring and, Blair, and Brain loves it He's wooing He tells Gorilla to spit out the banana And woo with me Gorilla And um, and then Savage man He is just selling in this match he, before he gets the knee injury late in the match He just, the way he gets thrown into the buckle When he gets uh, tossed into the corner And he's doing an unbelievable job And Bobby, uh, it's funny It's funny when we watch these And we hear things like pop culture references They make a reference to Love Connection uh, at, at one point Bobby does the show and um, And then Savage turns the tables And he starts on the offense for a while And I mean we end it. Liz comes out, and we'll go back and forth a little bit. But Darren, what are some of the things that you uh, that you remember that stood out to you with this match? Oh, there's so much stuff in this match that we could get through. Um, you know, one of the first things remember that Flair up to this point was a WCW NWA guy. Mm-hmm. He had big moments in in those you know in, in those uh, territories. When he walks down the aisle to the ring, it's a very slow walk. It's a deliberate walk. He stops a couple of times to look around, and then you get him on camera saying, this is the big show, baby. It's Flair's moment where he finally is in in, Mm -hmm. an environment like this. He deserves to be there. And you can really see, watching this back, that he is taking it all in. I don't know how long I'm going to be in WWF, WWE. I don't know if I'm going to have a moment like this here again. I'm taking this all in. And you could literally see it. I thought that was really cool. Uh, Savage comes out, you know, a thousand miles an hour like he should. Takes In this match, he takes some serious bumps. He takes a big yeah. uh, body drop over the top rope. I mean, you know, a, a hard fall. Flair gets two big vertical suplexes on him as well, where he's holding him up there uh, for quite some time. It's actually pretty impressive stuff. Uh, I mean, Savage gets beat up really quite a bit early on. You know, the one thing that bothered me, you know, when perfect, like grabs him and throws him down. I mean, yeah. Let the guy outside, grab the guy in the match and like obvious DQ right away, you know? And then later on, when you get to the main event and, and and the DQ, because Harvey Whippleman ran in the ring. Stands on the top, on the apron, you know, we'll we'll, we'll get to that. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, you get one of the iconic lines from an announcer in the history of WWE, where if you listen to uh, David LaGreca and uh, Bully Ray show, it's the feature line for their show, Busted Open. The Gorilla Monsoon line of the champ is busted open. It's a line that we hear time and time again. It's in the annals of history of, re- of wrestling. And I thought that it's, that it's cool that this is the match uh, that that comes from. Crowd is huge into it. You think you're going to get the win when Savage hits the elbow. You get perfect interfering. Then you think it's going the other way, 180 degrees, because perfect sends the knuckles into Flair that Savage gets hit with. He gets hit with the chair on the outside. 
one of the cool things in this match has nothing to do really with what's going on in the ring. When Liz comes out, the guy that's like yelling at her to try to get backstage is Shane McMahon. Shane O'Mac. <laughs> yep. I thought, I Baby face. Yep. yep. Young Shane I thought that was really cool. A uh, couple of funny lines from Heenan. At one point, Monsoon says something, and Heenan tells him to spit the banana out of his mouth. Um, <laughs> and then uh, he's talking about how uh, Liz is winking at, at Flair, of course, trying to trying to drum that up. But, uh, yeah, you get to roll up with the tights, and then you get a monster pop when when the three count hits. And, uh, and you know, one of the things I remember when I watched this match and it came on, I forgot how early on in the card that it was. Me too. Uh, until I watched it back. And then as we move through the card, and I said, okay, you're not they're not putting the two big matches back to back. I get it. You get you're gonna have that little Owen thing in the middle. Why was this the fifth match? And the natural disaster money ink match was the eighth match before the cooldown. Yeah. I don't I, in my opinion, this should have been the tag title match. And Savage Flair, it, the, the, the card should have ended. Savage Flair, your Owen Skinner cooldown, and, and then Hogan and Sid. There wasn't not an intermission, right? Like, because this felt right. like, it, like if this was older, I would have, we would have said, okay, this was the the main event for the end of the first half of the show for the intermission, you know. But there was no intermission, and it really felt like it after the match because they kind of had that parade of promos, you know. And then they even start like setting up the Hulk Sid stuff. Right yep. after that match, not before it, so it was really weird, like the way that that, that things were placed here. Um, but uh, but Andrew, you haven't uh, you haven't given your thoughts yet on the match, and then after I'll kind of clean it up and uh, and 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 hit the things that we that we didn't hit. So w- you said you kind of felt a little like this wasn't quite great. So what were the things that bothered you? Okay, well, first of all, talking about the placement of this match. Could Hogan and Sid have followed this in any way, shape, or form, even with a one-match buffer? No. I don't think so, and I think that's your answer. Now, this match, I liked it. Every time I watch it, I like it. I want to like it more. It seems like the last 10 minutes are the last 15 minutes of a much longer match. You can tell they were running up against a time problem. They fit a lot in. There's a lot going on. Now, at this time, WWE didn't really know how to shoot these kinds of matches where mm-hmm. there's a lot going on on the outside. It's there's a good point. going on in the ring. The camera that you see, the hard camera, it's pretty low. And as a result, you see all the chaos ringside when Elizabeth is trying to watch from the ring. She's not trying to interfere in the match. She's just out there watching. And for some reason, everyone's trying to usher her back. But all she's trying to do is watch and support Randy. Well, that's happening at the same time Mr. Perfect and Ric Flair are shuffling the foreign object back and forth. That's happening at the same time Randy Savage is writhing in pain. There's a lot going on in this match. Now, it's a good match. We talked about Savage taking some bumps. We forget Ric Flair at this time was in his mid-40s. Ric Flair's taking bumps from the top rope. He actually came flying off the top rope to do some sort of a move and got caught by a clothesline. Flair never took those kinds of bumps. Anytime Flair was going up, he was getting slammed down. Instead, we got Lucha Flair 
for maybe the first time in the history of Ric Flair's career. Now, the bad news. Earlier on in this show, for anyone that's been listening for any length of time, and if not, go back and listen now. We'll wait. Don't worry. We'll still be here. Okay, you're back. Good. Now, (laughs) we mentioned that Bret Hart did a blade job. And you could tell if you looked closely. Ric Flair blades and a blind man could see it. Now, this got Brett off the hook a little bit, even though they were able to convince most people that it was a hard way thing. Ric Flair does this in a way that insults the intelligence of anyone that's watching this. He rolls to the ring, rolls out of the ring, rather, and you can see him bring his hand to his forehead. And then he pops right up and he's like, oh, I'm bleeding. It's like Rodney Dangerfield feigning the injury in Caddyshack when everyone knows he's not. It's unfortunate, but just the way the camera was on him at the time did him no favors. The crowd goes crazy when Savage wins, and they should. It's a good match. The good guy wins. Now, is it a better match or a more enjoyable match than Bread and Piper? I don't think so, but it's a darn good match. It's a heck of a deal between two of the best to ever do it. But, unfortunately... We've still got an hour left in the show. Now, that goes back to what I said earlier. There was no way Hawkinson could follow that. And I think people knew it. As a result, we wind up with a show whose flow after this is, to put it kindly, pretty disjointed. Yep. It feels like this is kind of where the show, it almost feels like, Okay, so right afterwards, I don't mind the promos and then the, the kind of the cleanup of this match, and then it's even the the build of the Hogan stuff. It's fine to show that. I just don't know why they're showing that when in, in, now and not right before the Hogan Sid match, which is just really weird. So, a um, couple other things to mention. Um, Brain was just freaking out once Flair got busted open. Oh, I mean, it was so great, and um, and Macho is just insane. Like he is intense. Um, Perfect uses the chair. Liz comes out. We mentioned Shane O'Max out there. Flair locks on the figure four. Savage is struggling. Flair's talking trash to Liz, you know, outside the ring. Uh, Macho ends up getting Rip Flair in the roll up. He hooks the trunks. And once again, your WWF champion. Rest and then, in peace, Howard Finkel. The Fink. But what's crazy is about this um, one, you didn't get the announcement. For about five minutes after the match Because there's so much still going on in the ring Because it's not like a decisive win This was just kind of the start of the Savage Flair feud from here on out But this was a weird time in the Savage Elizabeth actual marriage Where they were like trying to reconcile And then soon after this they'd actually end up getting divorced So this was like a This feud of course Vince loves doing this Like putting people into these real life feuds That are gonna are gonna get a little animosity Between you know husband and wife And that's kind of what was happening here Right after the match Flair freaking plants one Right on Elizabeth's mouth Like straight up plant her right on the lips and then Macho goes absolutely ballistic. He ends up kind of like knocking her down when he ends up going after Flair. It takes like five people to hold him down. And he's just on one leg, hopping around, all insane. Um, we finally get the official announcement. And Macho gets a little celebration there with Liz. Uh, we get the, the promo backstage with Flair and Mr. Perfect. They're pissed off. They're in the locker room. They're screaming about injustice and cheating, which is great. Because these two are two of the all-time, like... Cheaters you know so it's just 
it's beautiful heel work here. Bobby joins them. He can barely breathe because he just came down from the announced booth. He's flabbergasted, and uh, and then Flair calls he, he calls Sav, uh, Liz a Jezebel, and uh, Perfect says the, the old lady is damaged goods. And it, what's funny about this is you know. 92 Survivor Series it's perfect And flair just kind of like what you were saying With Undertaker you know how Like in just six months he goes from being The monster heel like this guy is just Bad mouthing Savage's wife You know (laughs) and and at the end Of the year it's it's perfect And savage just because they needed a good guy When warrior was gone you know so We need to slide perfect in here just Just crazy and then um, This the the Savage promo after this was good because it was very intense. He's screaming, and one of my favorite Savage little like lines ever is, "This is what makes you tick. This is what makes you tick. This is what makes you tick." When he would repeat things, and just it was great. I just always it gives me goosebumps when when I just think about how good he was uh, sometimes with with his promos and that he took a part of Flair with the title, just, and he'll do anything a, to win. Just a piece. Oh, so good. So yeah. Good. So go ahead, Darren. No, I was just going to say, when he goes on with that, he's talking about, you know, like, you you just got a piece of me. Just a piece. You're going to get the whole thing. And he's, like, ripping the shirt off and, like, throwing it over his head, hands Elizabeth the belt and tells her, get out of here. And he is, like, the guy just won the title, and he is just enraged, you know. And it's, I mean, just a tremendous promo, and, and it just continues the feud outward. But, I mean, from start to finish, with the exception of the, of the blade job, you know, there's very little about this that I don't like. Anything on the promos, AC? I mean, it's good stuff, but you expect good stuff from these guys. And yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that they shunted Mr. Perfect into that role when Warrior uh, left the promotion for the second time. That was when he and Davey Boy Smith got busted for what the story is, is human growth hormone. What it actually was, we'll never know. But again, it's one of those things where with so many people leaving, and so many people in a constant state of flux. And we haven't even gotten to Hogan yet doing what Brett Favre would do 15 years later. And it's maddening how certain things wind up materializing. But when the situation calls for it and you need a guy, you can't do much better than Mr. Perfect to fill pretty much any role on the docket. Uh, so then, yeah, after this, they get the, you know, the setup for the Hogan Sid, which is weird because that match doesn't come next. We we get the model Rick Martel, who's been around now for a while at, at WrestleMania, and he's uh, in a match with Tatanka, who you could tell they were they were high on for a while. I mean, Tatanka had the undefeated gimmick going for a, a couple years until I believe it was Ludwig Borga that, that ended up uh, beating him. Um, right. And we get just some. Some awful, you know, Native American Indian stuff, you know, from like the promo over Martel and then from Bobby and stuff like that. The Rick Martel promo, he said uh, he had some reservations. He's not sure if there will be a match because he heard Tatanka is still out scalping tickets. Um, and uh, whenever Tatanka's coming out, you know, Gorilla is going to mention that he's a real Native American. Um, Bobby's now back at the announce table and there's tons of, uh, of the native Americans and Indians and, um, headdresses and everything celebrating around the ring and, and doing chants and stuff. And then, um, gorilla and Bobby really early on 
this was this is like one of my the favorite interactions where Bobby says, you know, said to the gorilla, they're talking about flair and gorilla. You're a liar. Bobby says another thing. You're a liar. He says it again, something again. You're a liar. I think he does it four times where gorilla just whatever Bobby says, he just screams at him. You're a liar. And it was they must have been just dying and having so much fun here. And then Bobby starts talking about the Cleveland Indians. He's going on for like two minutes about how Tatanka should be the pitcher. He's like, you never heard of the Cleveland Indians? Yeah, these Indians, they're from Cleveland. And uh, it was just um, some fun stuff with Gorilla and Bobby. That That's what I took the most out of this match, mainly the two of them. And uh, they were building Tatanka up, though. They liked him. He was always in that, like, intercontinental level. He was never really a main eventer, but he was always in the mid card. And you could you could usually put him in, like, some kind of an IC title feud and, and shoehorn him in. He wasn't great in the ring, but... And in, in, in this case, he wasn't over yet because he's still pretty brand new. He's still like really young, but he he had a decent little run where the crowd got behind him, you know, for the next couple of years. You never you never heard of that shame gorilla? Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? <laughs> oh, will you stop? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Tatanka, you know, even though he actually lost in a bunch of house shows um, throughout like, you know, the next year. They protect him on TV. He's got the whole undefeated thing, and they really make a tremendous selection for him losing his undefeated record to Ludwig Borga, who would then go into an incredible feud with Lex Luger. Uh, obviously, I am dripping with sarcasm. Um, yeah, I was going to say, some of it came through my phone here. I'm going to return it back to you by mail. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, Tatanka's had, had some good matches. He had, he had a good match with Bam Bam Bigelow. At a Royal Rumble, I think it was actually Royal Rumble '93. Uh, good worker, not great. You know, would get everybody up when he would kind of do that Indian dance thing when he would look like he was getting beat up. It was like his version of of hulking up. Um, yeah, the match is fine. I was always a, a fan of Martel. I liked his gimmick, liked his look. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a good cool down match, and and you know, Tatanka continues to get his push forward. Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but uh, Bobby Heenan did a remarkable job of staying composed. If all you had to do is listen to him and listen to him talking about, I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to get upset. You're not going to make me upset. And the notes that I have for this match are very little about this match. The main note I have is Heenan goes insane. And that's what he did because he ran down, he ran back up to do commentary, and it was so good. The match itself... No great shakes. Tatanka was good for what he was. Good lower mid-card guy to pop the crowd. And WWE actually brought him back in the mid-2000s for a two-year nostalgia run that I'm not sure anyone ever really asked for. (laughs) But somehow he sort of pulled it off. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. It could have been worse. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely could have been worse. But this match, not a lack of a lot memorable about it. Rick Martel was a really good worker, but his mania moments came elsewhere. Tatanka got the win to give him some momentum. And as mentioned, just the the undefeated streak that he had that was sacrificed at the altar of Ludwig Borga. Just the less said about that, the better. This just it, this was like a couple of matches that we're going to talk about. It was just sort of there. Yeah, not a whole lot more to say about that one Tatanka wins with the cross body Then we get a basic promo backstage with Money Inc Now they are the current tag team champions This is Ted DiBiase This is IRS Irwin R. Shyster, Mike Rotundo And we have Jimmy Hart with them 
and uh, the natural disasters are newly turned babyface. This is Earthquake. This is Typhoon, who used to be Tugboat, or we know him as the Shockmaster from one of the more infamous moments in wrestling. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that could be a full podcast on its own, that one. Um, when we start getting to, into some NWA and WCW stuff one day. Um, so we got the uh, this matches for the tag team titles. We got the big men in control early. They're cleaning house. I mean, this is really like an elongated squash match here. There's very little offense that Money Inc. gets in. Um, at one point, they they you know are in control for a, a bit, and then they really slow things down. Uh, I thought one of the funnier things that, that Bobby said was he thinks both DiBiase and IRS should be allowed in uh, against one of the disasters. You know, like a handicap match because of their size, it, it evens out that way. And um, and then they just do the cheap, cheap move. I mean, as a kid, this move would just always would make me so mad when a team in a, in a title match or in a big match would take the uh, would, would take the titles and just walk and, and, and get DQ'd. And then Bobby says, "It doesn't bother me. I do it all the time," you know. <laughs> and then uh, and Gorilla freaks out about how they're walking out and they're losing the purse, but they end up just walking out. I mean, this is yeah, this isn't a whole lot. It just. Um, the natural disasters were okay as faces. They needed the right partners. They're they're just they weren't really workers. Going and anything over five minutes was was even much for them. I I yeah I don't like anything about this match at all, uh, and it has nothing to do with earthquake. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's just you know you got you got the, the new tag team champions. They get virtually no offense in, other than DiBiase getting in some good sounding. Reverse night veg chops. I, I I don't know what tugboat was doing in this match. Um, he misses DiBiase when he has to like, you know, he like goes to hit DiBiase to go over the top rope. He's supposed to miss him and he does, but then he's clearly supposed to just fly over the top rope himself. He doesn't do it. He gets caught in the ropes and he kind of bounces back. DiBiase just stands there and then he literally launches himself back over the top rope, like it's just. It's a horrible-looking bump. Then later on, he takes a double clothesline from uh, DiBiase and IRS, and he turns around backwards into the clothesline. Like, as he's running, instead of sloppy, taking the sloppy stuff, turns backwards into the clothesline. It's just it's bad. The crowd for the vast majority of the match is completely dead. The only time they get any type of volume into it is when Earthquake – it looks like Earthquake is going to hit him with his – finisher and then obviously they pull irs out and that's the end of it but i I mean i in all honesty there's not a single thing about this match that i like but darren do you know what the natural disasters were (laughs) (laughs) they were big men who could move (laughs) cheap pop cheap pop get your big men who can move t-shirts at Mm -hmm. it's me genobshop.com this match was horrible um, however, the, the thing that was even more horrible about this is this is when, you know, WWF is having some significant financial issues. Jimmy Hart is at ringside. We saw him for the eight man tag match. He was out there with the nasty boys. He's got the same thing. It's yep. the same outfit. He never yep. did that. Yeah. Ever. And it's jarring. If you look for it, there are these cool little Easter eggs that you see on rewatches. And I'm like. Wait a minute. In past WrestleManias, he'd have like nine outfits for the nine different guys he goes to the ring with. It's the same one. 
And it was jarring to me. But again, that's what you get when you rewatch all these WrestleManias as we have. You count on certain things and you don't notice them until they're not there. Now, Bobby Heenan has a really good line here with uh, Typhoon saying that he looked like a big red Hindenburg, you know, toppling <laughs> over. And it's, I, I hope nobody from Germany was watching that for sure. But I'm going to pose a theory because this match was not good, but it wasn't all the natural disasters fault. Money Incorporated. This is a case to me where the whole was far less than the sum of its parts. You had Ted DiBiase, who, yes, was getting older, but still had a little bit of time left and was still a good worker when given the chance. You had Mike Rotundo in a gimmick that still to this day gets laughs whenever they bring it out, just simply because it was a fun, sort of sophisticated gimmick with some good promos, and the guy got into it. The tag team matches that I see with Money Incorporated, they're not good. Me neither. No, I agree. They stink. And it makes you wonder because you have two of these guys. Dibiase's a Hall of Famer. Wouldn't surprise anybody if Mike Rotundo ever goes into the Hall of Fame for everything that he did. There's no chemistry there. They don't let those guys do anything. And they go up against these guys that do not play to their strengths. To me, this was a case where they had nothing to do with these two guys. They threw them together. Oh, Money Incorporated. That's a darn good name. Let's see if it works. And they put the tag belts on them. But that was, to me, more of a reflection of the fact that the tag division in the early to mid-90s in the World Wrestling Federation was god-awful. Every time I see a Money Incorporated match, I want to like the match. I really, truly do. I give it a good, honest shot. And then the bell rings, and I'm going, that's it? And that's even notwithstanding the horrible finish to this match wherein they protect these guys. WrestleMania is made for moments like this to blow feuds off not horrible finishes that continue feuds. There's nothing good about this match, and I feel like we've already spent too much time on it. Yeah, it just this was by far the worst match on the show because he, some of the other ones that are short, like the, the model and Tatanka, wasn't bad. It was just, you know, a four minute to, to get Tatanka it's over. It's my motto on the golf course. I suck, but I suck quick. <laughs> exactly. I got to get that as a soundbite. I got to get that as a soundbite to put on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Gino, be Get careful! Ready. Right after this, we're recording another I know, podcast. I know. You're gonna do. You're gonna do something, something like that to me a little later. But uh, oh yeah. So just, just not, not good. Yeah, I, I kind of felt the same way. And I hate saying this because DiBiase does a lot of good, but He's a lot so of good. these, a lot of the matches that I've been rewatching back with him, like a lot of his matches on the big stage for whatever reason i think they're like more about the story than the match it's he got he did a lot of his good work at house shows and on like the msg cards that we didn't get to see a whole lot you can kind of look back and see some of them on the network now because a lot of these matches i'm like it's kind of slow like rest holds he's not really bumping all over as much as i would think you would think with someone like dibiase so yeah that's that's definitely been a notice of mine too in some of these rewatches as we get set for a really weird uh, match, but we just get a real quick Brutus the Barber beefcake promo. He's just kissing some Hogan ass here. Uh, one of his meal tickets. Oh, thank, thank, you, thank you, man. Yeah. Did you like thank- that? <laughs> <laughs> the guy knows where his bread is buttered. I mean, oh. that's a guy that milked the Clippers and a positive relationship with Hulk Hogan into a Hall of Fame career. More power to you, buddy. Yep. 
Yep. Um, and then uh, Gorilla says, uh, in fact, Hulkamania will live forever. And Bobby says, yeah, but memories are cheap, <laughs> which is just good stuff. We get a match that lasted one minute and 10 seconds next. And this is Owen Hart versus Skinner. Just like a weird spot for this. Um, but it's just a super quick back and forth. Uh, o- uh, Owen gets a, a roll up for the win. This is actually Owen's second Mania match. He was at WrestleMania five when he was the Blue Blazer when he wrestled against Mister Perfect there. And then we'll see uh, Owen in a couple years with you know one of the all time great matches when he opens the show with Brett in '94. Show that we talked about. You can go back and listen to that recap. And uh, I mean, that's it. Just just re- this is again like. I, I think this is, you know, they're worried about time now. They're probably looking at the clock, things here and there. And this match was probably supposed to be five minutes and it ends up getting cut down to one. But it's one of those things. It's like, why put them out there for this one minute? And why not just not even put this match out there and then just like they did with the Bulldog match? There was supposed to be a Bulldog versus the Berserker match, I believe, that ended up getting um, cut because of time. And if you're going to go through, you know, getting them out to the ring for a minute, this just. I don't know. I'm fine with Owen getting the win. It felt, you know, whatever, but it just it didn't have a place here. And he gets in no offense at all. I mean, the, he gets beat up by Skinner, and, and he, the only reason he wins is because Skinner thinks he throws him over the top rope, and Owen comes in and rolls him up and wins the match. That's the only offensive movie. Well, he gets a drop kick in after the match is over. But uh, yeah, it's just a weird match. And this is one of the things, you know, and again, it could be a time thing, but if you have a choice, between Owen and the Berserker, I mean Owen and and Skinner, or Bulldog versus the Berserker, why wouldn't you have Bulldog versus Berserker? You really need Skinner on a WrestleMania card here, but and I know they're not thinking ahead, but isn't it funny? Because this was a note that I kind of had for the end of the show that the the guy who wins yep. the main event of the next pay per view that you have isn't even on this show. Hundred percent agree. It was one of the things when I tweeted out about it that that threw me because I knew about the Bulldog Berserker match and. You know, I, I I don't know if at this point they had planned yet for that. I, I, I'm pretty sure from what I've read that they knew that Bulldog was going to go over for the IC belt at SummerSlam for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was the plan. I don't know if it was the plan yet. I can't say that with any certainty. But, I mean, if you're thinking that that's going to be what's going to happen, how is the guy not even on the card? And, and that's one of the things that just threw me for a loop. Can we discuss Owen Hart's tights? What the <laughs> hell was that dude wearing? Like, what's the rationale the for any of that? The high energy tights. Yeah. Like okay. the Zumba big, like um, pregnant woman pants. There. Yoga pants. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It, it was just, it, that was bad. This match did have one really good spot. I liked the spot right when they came back to the arena. You see Owen flipping to the middle of the ring, and he flips right into Skinner spitting the tobacco juice. I actually thought that was a pretty cool spot. The problem was the match itself was just, it was awful, and it was just there to be there. And again, timing being what it is, yeah. I mean, there that probably was supposed to be a four-minute match that got cut down to one. Maybe the tag title match went on too long. Maybe promos went on too long. You don't know. But... Going into Bulldog and the Berserker, there are some matches from late 80s, early 90s, AWA, where the Berserker is wrestling as Yukon John Nord, and he does some really cool stuff. 
that used to be on ESPN Classic, the ancient network that should be on far more carriers than it is. He does some pretty cool stuff that guys his size weren't doing at the time. If you get a chance, go down the rabbit hole. It's pretty cool stuff. AWA was building him up as a pretty big deal right up until Vergania went bankrupt. And I was a little bit surprised looking back that they couldn't find more to do with him once he made the jump to the WWF, but only so many spots, and he was a victim of that. Yeah, he, he had a little feud with The Undertaker where I think he was supposed to, like, stab him, or he did end up stabbing him with, like, a sword. It was it was bizarre, but uh, it just, just seemed out of place. Give me five minutes of Bulldog. Uh, Berserker, let's get Bulldog out there Win with the power move, you know Set him up for uh, for the good end of the year that he was going to have um, But that was not the case uh, As we get set for now Our main event First of Sid backstage <laughs> Yeah, not, not main event We get set for the final match of the show Let's put, let's put it that way The match that That's would bad, close yeah. the show um, Sid is backstage with me and Gene He calls him a short, fat, bald-headed little oaf Which was just kind of funny You know, the way he says it So, like, matter-of-factly And he promises this will be Hulk's last match We see some of the clips about the uh, Right before this There was an episode of Primetime Wrestling um, Just the week before It was basically like the go-home show for this And there were a couple matches on the show It's I went back and watched it It's actually kind of a fun watch There's a Piper versus Shawn Michaels match in there Non-title uh, That's kind of fun And then you get a couple other squash uh, squashes in the mix And then you get this Hogan interview at the end where he talks with Vince about how he doesn't know what his future is and is this going to be Hulk Hogan's last match. It's a it's that sit down interview where he's got the bandana on that many of us have seen you know many many times I'm sure. And and then we get Harvey Whippleman introducing Sid for the main event. This was another thing that was weird too. Is like you didn't even have like if if you put Sid with Bobby. You know, or and I know Bobby wasn't really with anyone at this point, or even like I, even Jimmy, who who felt a little bigger, but it just was like Harvey Whippleman felt like such a jobber manager. You know, like who was the last person that he like managed that was of any substance whatsoever before Sid, and now he's like introducing the guy for the main event here of Mania, and I will say. The crowd was damn hot for this match. I mean, especially like right away when Hogan came out. I think because the last forty-five minutes have been. Just nothing to cheer about after the you know the macho flair match ended, and we know all the reasons that we talked about some of the reasons, but we know a little bit of the history about like why this match happened. You know, Vince loved Sid, and Sid comes in in you know in ninety one. He's at ninety one survive uh, ninety one SummerSlam when he's the referee in the match. Um, Hogan and Warrior against Sergeant Slaughter and Mustafa and Adnan And you know people don't know Is he going to be the good guy or the bad guy Who, who is he going to help in this match And then the, the show ends up With, with Sid and, and Hogan posing um, At the end of that show And so there was a storyline This is long before Rick Feud is even in the WWF And then what ends up happening towards the end of 91 When they were going to continue this, this you know Back and forth with Hogan and, and uh, Sid Sid gets hurt and so we don't see Sid really from SummerSlam until the Royal Rumble. And then he shows up at the Royal Rumble. He it's kind of funny too when you look back at things. And this is this is sort of what we were talking about with like how how things are presented. Because what the hell did Sid ever do wrong in the Royal Rumble? 
he he I mean he eliminated Hogan who's the good guy. He wasn't like he cheated. He didn't do anything wrong. In the Royal Rumble it's every man for themselves. He literally just threw him over the top rope. Hogan was the one who ends up pulling Sid out and doesn't really have much of a gripe. So if there's anyone who literally had a case to be the number one contender It is Sid here you know when you look at it And you and you spin it that way But this is 92 WWF So Hulk Hogan is the superhero And he does no wrong And he comes out huge pop Sid attacks Hogan while he gets in the ring Hogan can't even get his shirt off Or his, uh, his hat off He's uh, But he fights back he knocks it out of the ring And the bell rings and then after that My first note is This match sucks I mean it's just it's slow it's awful, but the damn the, the damn crowd is really still into it in parts. It's just punches, it's strength moves. We get a Sid choke slam. Um, positive that I that I will say. I do like the heel work during the match of Sid when he's talking, you know, talking during the match. He's talking to the camera. He's really like, you know, acting like he's the man. Um, he used the 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 Whippleman doctor's bag to hit Hogan outside of the ring. And uh and it's funny in every Hulk Hogan match when he any match that he's facing a heel, we always get the line from somebody where they say, you know, Hulk Hogan has never been manhandled like this. <laughs> every time, every heel that he's ever faced, you hear that. You know, you, you can go back from all of them, from Andre to King Kong Bundy to whoever Undertaker, whoever the next guy was. We always hear that nobody's ever manhandled Hogan like they did. Then we just get. Like a slow neck hold Hulk. It looks like Hulk is just laying there On Sid's leg Doing nothing and Then we get the Hulk up um, Sid with a wrestling move He hits a side suplex um, He And then he nails a power bomb So like some of the power moves with Sid that That's, like, that's fine um, But we get a kick out from Hogan Then a second Hulk up So he's hulking up twice now in this match And at this point Brain says They're both nuts <laughs> And uh Hogan hits the big boot, he hits a body slam, he drops the leg, but Sid kicks out. Which, you know, I'm sure we'll we'll mention what why um here, but I guess there was bad timing because we see that Papa Shango comes out and he was supposed to come out earlier and break this up. So Sid realizes this isn't how the match is supposed to end. He kicks out. Harvey Whippleman tries to get into the ring. And they call a DQ But there's a lot going on uh, here Where Papa Shango and Sid Are um, are beating on Hogan And um, they're Double teaming him here And then I will say I forgot how big Of a pop this was When we hear the music for the Ultimate yeah. Warrior I mean if I'm thinking of like the top Five pops that I can remember There's a couple Stone Cold ones that I can think of um, This is Definitely on the list I mean the crowd goes absolutely ballistic For an ultimate warrior that comes out With a different look Noticeably smaller Shorter hair Kind of looks like a completely different guy here He saves Hogan um, And then to end the show We got Hogan and ultimate warrior Doing the pose and celebrating And then what's weird Hogan's gone Till Mania 9 After this we only see Hulk Hogan In the WWF in televised matches after this At Wrestlemania 9 where he has those Two matches at King of the Ring 93 where he loses The title and I believe he has like A house show match that you can probably find Somewhere where he's like tagging with Brutus against Money Inc in between those Two and then Hogan wrest- Hogan's gone from the WWF He wrestles a couple matches in New Japan uh, Later and then he's A year later 
he he's in WCW in his first match in WCW he's winning the the world heavyweight title so it, it's really strange to see how things change from 92 to 93 and then Hogan in 94 is just in a in a different company and he's already the man over there but th- this is just not good Darren no it's it's not um there's a lot of things about this um one thing that that struck out to me uh and, and it it didn't really stand out to me at, at WrestleMania six nearly as much as here. Hogan at this point is 38. Sid's 33. Hogan looks like he's 25 years older than Sid. He does. He looks like an old beat up man in this match next to this Adonis looking figure. That's only five years. His junior. Um, a, a funny thing that I totally never realized until watching this. Sid's entrance music all of a sudden reminded me of the funny song that Matthew McConaughey beats his chest to in Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) 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 The same note. I was like, oh, wow, look at that. That's just a funny thing. We need some humor to talk about with this match. Um, Yeah, I mean, I thought it was weird. I mean, they show the Hogan promo that by this point we've seen so many times that you don't get a a Hogan live promo at the event for the first time. You know, we've always seen Hogan with Gene. Well, you know something, That's a great point. That's a good point. The first time that we don't get that promo from Hogan, which I thought uh, was interesting. Um, You get the test of strength like they tried to do at WrestleMania 6, but the WrestleMania 6 one was was much better. Sid gets a lot of domination in at this point, Um, a lot of big moves. Hogan doesn't really do a whole lot of anything until he hulks up. Now, I th- Shango's supposed to come in and break up the pin. He misses the cue by like two minutes, which it's not I don't close. Know. Yeah, like it's not even close. And then he, when he comes out, he comes out slow, like looking around, like, "Wow, where am I? Where all these? How do all these people get in my room?" <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. What it, well, I don't, I, it's just it's just so bizarre. Uh, the pop of the night is Warrior, and I, I mean a bigger pop than Hogan, a bigger pop than when Randy Macho. Warrior. Yep, pop of the night. He comes out. He's forty pounds lighter, like you said. I mean, it's just the contrast from the Warrior that we saw at WrestleMania six and and even seven to this Warrior is just. It, it's like people won't, thought it was a different person. It wasn't. But they thought it was a different person. Now, <laughs> the crazy part with Sid, and by the way, as an anti-Hogan guy, I was really hoping that Sid was actually going to win this match and bury Hogan and send him off into the sunset. But that doesn't happen, of course. Um, Sid is supposed to go on this heel run, and they're supposed to have a feud between Sid and the Warrior. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a big, big feud, which probably would have been a lot of fun. Um, they have some house shows. Sid, by the way, before WrestleMania, test positive because of, well, look what he looks like. Um, Test positive for a drug violation. They let him wrestle here. They let him go on the European tour. He has a couple of house show matches with Warrior. He wins a couple of matches against Sid. I think by DQ, Sid's not happy about what's going on, and he quits. Like literally a month after WrestleMania 8, he quits. And they replaced Sid in the feud with Warrior with Papa Shango, who's still wondering how all these people got in his room. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, everything about this 
is a complete a complete cluster. It's, it's like just- when when you know when we we've seen some really good matches like we've talked about with like uh with Brett and Owen or with um Sean and and Razor. You know, it seems like in those matches that are great, even even things in like the Brett Piper match too. Like some of the things in matches that help make them good good to like great are like little bits of luck. Right, little things where something falls this way, the ladder falls this way on top of him, you know, or something like that. That in in these some of these really bad matches like this, it's the opposite. It's like anything that can go wrong from the timing to just the work rate in general to the spot here to this to that, like it just all fell flat. Yeah, uh, I mean, you guys nailed a lot of this. Now, going back all the way to the pre-match promos, Sid looks like a badass in these promos. Now, we can make fun of what he said, but he looks like a star, and it's clear that they're trying to push the guy. Then you have Hogan doing his, am I retiring? Am I not retiring? I don't know. I'm being ambiguous in case my television show gets canceled. And it makes you wonder what would have happened if Hulk Hogan had... Dwayne Johnson's acting success because then you don't have WrestleMania nine. You don't have Hogan going to WCW. All of that is done. You don't have Hogan rock at WrestleMania in Toronto. (laughs) Toronto had to work that in. You don't have any Hogan stuff. You know, this tag team with edge. You don't have Hogan Orton. You don't have Hogan in TNA, which may very well be a worthwhile trade-off because of how bad that was. But it makes you wonder those little things. If Hogan's shows and movies had taken off, where would wrestling be right now? And all of those little things converge here in the main event of WrestleMania 8. Sid was not ready. Um, Sid was never a technical maestro in the ring. There was one guy that got a really good match out of him. And it was in WCW, and it was a guy we can't talk about because if we do, then the censors of good taste will come. And <laughs> Voldemort was, from, uh, yes, I think some people refer to yes, him as. Yeah. He who must not be named. Yes, that guy. Um, this match, oh boy. There's no timing. There's no chemistry. Hulk does the Hulk up and the place goes bonkers. And at this point, I'm begging, please, hit the leg drop. Send us home. Fine. Usually the best part of a bad match is when it's over. That wasn't the case here because the match was supposed to be over about five different times. Papa John goes missing his cue. You have Harvey Whippleman playing a part in this match when he had no right to. They beat up Hogan and you know something's going to happen because regardless of how that match wound up, there was no way Hogan was ending the show flat on his back. So you hear Heenan go, this is crazy. He don't have a friend left. Dun, 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 dun. And the second the music hits, everyone goes bonkers. I mean, that, if anything else, shows you the power of what that music brought to the Ultimate Warriors character. He runs down. He and Hogan clear the ring. And they do the pose. Now. If you watch the pose off, it is very clear. Warrior is very rusty 
because Hogan is having to talk him through how to pose together for the crowd. And they're trying to interact with the crowd. They bring a sign in that says, bring the warrior back. And Warrior tries to take the sign, like reaching out into the crowd, and Hogan has to stop him going, no, no, no. Watch that. It's fascinating. You can tell there's so much tension between these two guys, specifically because Warrior thought he was on the same level as Hogan, which he might have been at one point, but certainly wasn't now. Um, There was the uh, issue before the SummerSlam main event where... Hogan may have suggested the Iron Sheik break Warrior's leg. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to unpack. Not a lot of it is very good. And it really puts a damper on a WrestleMania that's two hours and 45 minutes, where the first hour and 45 minutes from top to bottom is some of the best wrestling that you're going to see maybe ever at any WrestleMania. There's something for everybody. And if the WrestleMania ends on Flair and Savage's promos, is anyone complaining? I don't think so. And then you have a couple of nothing matches followed by one of the worst main events in WrestleMania history. WrestleMania 8 is still a very fun rewatch. I voted for it in the poll a couple of weeks ago. I'm happy we wound up getting to it. I really enjoyed a lot of parts of this show. But the way that it ended, specifically the last hour where absolutely nothing burger after nothing burger after nothing burger. And Oh, by the way, the main event sucks. It just, it left a horrible taste. And you my forget mouth. about how good the first half of the show is, you and know, you like don't you... forget it, but it looks significantly less impressive mm-hmm. with how the show ended. And I understand they wanted to give Hogan a moment, but and the warrior moment, another, the, the warrior another, surprise, you know, yeah. it's like, hey, warrior's the next guy again. Here's another passing of the torture. And wh- how that wind up for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, just, it just, yeah, because like you go through the card. Michaels versus Tito, very solid, good opener. Undertaker, Jake, really fun. Nothing bad to say about that. Two four-star matches in Bret Hart versus Piper and Randy versus Ric Flair. You get that fun eight-man tag that's quick and it's got the good intro and stuff with Ray Combs. And then, like, so that's a that's a fun five matches there where there's nothing really wrong with any of those. And then you get the Tatanka Martel. Okay, that's a downer after. I'm even that match I'm okay with. Doesn't bother me. It it served its purpose. You get the bad natural disaster match that drags a little too long, and that one goes eight plus with those guys. And then you get the Owen Hart Skinner match that doesn't fit. And you get at this point. So let, let's think about this, right? Like Mania One is fun; it's nostalgic. The main of it, the work rate isn't great, but even the main event, it's it's fun. You got the you know you got you got Piper and Orndorff, and you got um, Hogan and Mr. T. It's great. WrestleMania Two. You know the Hogan Bundy match in the cage. It's it's not one of the better ones, but it's not a a horrible match. It's not completely awful. Mania three with with Andre is great. Mania four, the main event there is a uh, Savage versus DiBiase with all the the stuff going on and you know with with Hogan and, and with Andre. That's really fun. That's one of the best matches on the show. You know with those two guys. Mania five, we get Hogan with one of his better Mania matches ever against. You know, Savage, Mania 6 We get Hogan with a really good match against Warrior We look at 7, 8 And then what we see from Hogan in 9 Those are 3 really bad years After, you know, a stretch of like 5 or 6 
pretty good years for a guy that wasn't a good worker. I mean, he was not good against Slaughter in the the Mania Seven, which we talked about, which was a a pretty solid show actually. That one too, but it kind of in the same way. Like when there's so much better earlier on the show, and that doesn't end up finishing it. We we didn't we weren't used to getting DQs like this in the main event of WrestleMania either. Not at all, and it's a case where yeah. Hogan and Slaughter wasn't good, but it also wasn't all the way bad. Like, it wasn't actively, repulsively awful. It was the American hero winning against the traitor and sending the fans home happy, and the match quality was almost secondary. This was supposed to be Hogan's quote-unquote farewell match, and from the word go, it was just, ugh. Could you imagine if this was the last, you know, and we and Hogan came back and did some good work, right? Like the, his his run when he returned after some of the bad stuff in WCW early. Then he obviously he turns NWO. He's a great job there as the heel. He comes back, and you mentioned the match with The Rock. He kind of has that fun little run where he's with Edge, and he goes against Shawn Michaels, and we all get a good laugh, and we get the we get the feels like we were a kid again. But could you imagine, like you said, if if he goes on and he does acting, and this is his last match, and we're thinking about what a just a, a bad way to go out. If this would have been Because I mean I just I know Darren you you're, you mentioned You weren't always the biggest Hogan fan And we've seen and talked about Literally like His best moments you know So we've we've definitely had to talk positive About him a, a lot of the times because He put on really good matches and, and really good shows in, in Mania 3 he did the same In Mania 6 again um, But this was not one of those and and I think we got it we we are fine with giving him plenty of criticism here because he didn't seem very into it he, he had his you know his easy leaving the steroid stuff the movie stuff and this just this would have been one of those things where he could have he would have been much better off telling Vince like hey let's just put me on in the middle of the show you know and let the let Randy close things out right you know and he's such a giving man according to beefcake that he would have <laughs> <happened. laughs> Hogan must pose. Hogan must close the show, no matter what. And you know they they pay the price for it at the end of the show. Um, you know, and and I mean I'm at this point where I'm. I, this is just my view. I look. I know the Warrior wasn't a good worker, but brought you a lot of excitement. Loved the gimmick. You know, I'm seven years old. You go to a birthday party. You want face paint? Sure. What face paint do you want? You want the Ultimate Warrior. You know, I was a savage guy. I was a Brett guy long before most people were Brett guys. I was just tired of Hogan constantly being shoved into my face. And then in WrestleMania 9, Brett loses. Here's Hogan. He's going to get the win. Like, I was just over it, you know. And, and you know, off of 7, the match with Slaughter, while not a complete and utter disaster, was a, was a poor match. This match was a complete and utter disaster. It was time to move on. And it bothered me in that Vince would get rid of guys – that still had miles on the tires and could still work and could still put on good matches. But at the same time, he would keep Hogan around, who at this point, his work was noticeably declining. Now, I get it. He's Babe Ruth. I understand. You know, he's an attraction. He's your draw. He sells the merchandise. He pays the bills. I understand that. But you could still have him and not have him be the center of everybody's world in every pay-per-view. And that's what started to bother me. And, and the proof in the pudding, by the way, you come out of this. The Rampage 92 show is actually, if you've never seen it, it's not a well-known pay-per-view. It's actually a really good show. Um, and you, I'm sure you could probably get it on the network, of course. Mm-hmm. 
SummerSlam 92 was a really good SummerSlam. A lot of fun. Some good matches. The Kamala Undertaker thing. The Brett Bulldog match is great. The Savage Warrior match has got cool stuff going on. The Martel Michaels match with no punching in the face is a lot of fun. You know, the, there's, there's cool things going on. Survivor Series 92 is a really good show. Brett and Sean have a yep. great match. You know, and by the way, and then you get to Royal Rumble 93. You know, say what you want, but there's some good stuff in that show. Not bad. Um, it's not bad. And all of this went on without Hogan. It's possible to have a good product without Hogan. You know, they could do it. But then you get right back to WrestleMania 9, and we got to bring him right back in. And what happens in WrestleMania 9? It's a shit show. I'm not saying that Hogan is the cause of that. My point is that when you're so focused on this one guy, and it's the way it's been for all these years, and this must happen, and this must happen, and we've got to do this with Hogan, and we've got to do that with Hogan, it screws other things up. There's a and shelf I, life. There's yes. a shelf life for that. And it, it was the same exact thing that happened in WCW, right? You can go and you can do it for a few years. But the problem is Hogan signs all these crazy contracts when he goes over to WCW. And and at the beginning, it's great because it's like they get, they're able to go to TV. You know, they're able to, to go to network or, you know, they take they, they're able to promote Hogan on their own networks and people know who the hell they're talking about. They're able to show advertisers, hey, we've got Hulk Hogan here. They're able to get legitimate money. But then by... 99 like once the NWO thing has run its course The problem is you've got old Hulk Trying to recreate things over and over That we've seen he's trying to get his ba- his Buddies paydays he's trying to do stuff And shove it down our throats that we've seen over And over again and it, it just Doesn't work for a long Like you know four three four Five years maybe and as you Get into the more modern era with More TV with more content It doesn't last nearly as long He's lucky that he came in in a time period where you could have year-long builds. You know, everything was a six-month build because there wasn't a whole lot of TV, and we didn't get this. We we didn't get sick of Hulk Hogan, you know, because we didn't see him a whole ton until right around this point, right? It was like night, like ninety-one into ninety-two when you could tell the crowds were actually like not not in this particular match because you, this is being announced as as. One of his final matches maybe So the crowd was into him here for sure But 92 Rumble They seemed like they were fine when Sid dropped him out You know like yep. we like Hogan even the stuff with the Undertaker At the end of 91 the, Some of the crowds were super into Undertaker We heard it kind of right before that with Jake too There was always this big legend of a feud That was supposed to happen with Hulk and Jake But when Jake DDT'd Hulk At a, at a house show the crowd went crazy and they loved it and Vince scrapped it right away. So there were, you know, um there were times where, you know, Hulk wasn't even the the popular Hulk that we know, but they did it was a different time and Vince, we got to say, he did a good job with what he had. Like there it was a good marriage for a long time and this is the man he built the the company the back of the company on, but towards the end, 92 into 93, it just it just wasn't good and it I like what Hulk did when he came back. I will say that. Did some good work in WCW, but this was a bad 90, what, 91 through 92, 93 wasn't good for Hulk. And even like Hulk 94, 95, until Bash at the Beach 96, Bobby the Brain, whose side is he on? Until that, Hulk was kind of irrelevant for like four years. He just wasn't, it was just eh. Yep. And and who did, and the weird thing was, who was the guy that went back to WCW before Hulk? 
who once they brought Hogan in got sent to the back of the line, which makes no sense. Ric Flair. Flair. WCW took a dump all over Ric Flair and sacrificed him for Hogan. And they wanted Flair to job to Hogan when Hogan came in. And the only reason that the Hogan thing worked was when they flipped him at Bash at the Beach and became a part of the NWO. And they sacrificed their relationship with their icon of their company for so long because, oh, we got to do something with Hogan. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm telling you, at this point, like you said very well, Gino, things have a shelf life. We talked about Warrior last time. That gimmick would not work in 1996. It has a shelf life. Every Even now, Undertaker couldn't just be the dead man for 25 years where he walked around with, with purple under his eyes and making people think he was really dead. You have to you have to adjust your character. The Hogan thing had run its course, and they just kept on driving it home. And I think it did damage, in my opinion, in both companies. I'm going to actually, okay, we've been talking for about two hours, and I haven't played devil's advocate yet. So I get to fill that role. Yay. Okay. Say they announce Hogan versus Flair at WrestleMania 8. Please tell me you believe that that would have been a better match than Hogan against Sid. Sure. Yeah. Now, what was the very first thing that WCW did after bringing Hulk Hogan in? They capitalized on that dream match that the WWF didn't give its fans on a big stage. WCW did a lot of things very wrong. Let me yep. not pull punches on that. Having said that, one of the things that they did right that fired a shot at the WWF was they had that match at Bash at the Beach 94. It was a good match. If you watch it back, Flair does a really nice job of carrying Hogan. Hogan wins with the leg drop. Everyone goes home happy. The crowd legitimately cheers for Hulk Hogan. Now, the problem was... The same thing that happened with the Ultimate Warrior in 1990 happened with Hulk Hogan in 1994 in a different company. After they did that, they had no top-line heels. Yep. So what did they do? They created the Dungeon of Doom. And we got the Butcher, and we got all the uh, the different versions of the Zodiac, and uh, five the different shark. faces of... Brutus the Barber Beefcake. We got, you know, uh, Zeus, uh, what was he? Z something Z Gangsta? Z Gangsta was there uh, in WCW. And yeah, the, the, the right off the bat, I remember that that hitting it was good. And they and they were able to to use, like you said, what WWF didn't do and say, hey, look, this is still a match that we've all been waiting for. We've never really got. And it wasn't terrible. Um, it wasn't. It's just. I hate the way this mania ends because I thought it was a really damn good show, top to bottom. Um, you know, especially those first five matches or show, um, and and then that that second half was when things things start to turn, and in particular this last match with a uh, a bad taste that it leaves us. So uh, before we get ready to go, just think about this: the next mania that we're going to be doing is uh, 1998, right? WrestleMania 14, and think about uh, Shawn Michaels. Right, the difference between this one and the next, 
the the six years where he is on the card and and where he is on the show. It's just crazy how when you you jump around like this, you see the the snapshot of someone's career, and then you see them again five six years down the line. So uh, closing thoughts, Darren. Yeah, I for me this show, I, I, look good show, a lot of good spots, especially the first half like you talked about. For me, this show is like you're on the third date with a girl. And all the dates, especially this one, have gone extremely well. You've had a very nice dinner. Maybe you saw a movie. There's been some nice kitchen kissing and stuff like that. And now you drive back to our house and you pull up in front of the house. <laughs> and you get a peck on the cheek, good night, and out the car she goes. That's what this WrestleMania for me was like. Um, without getting graphic, there's no happy ending. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. You know, um, first of all, I think Darren is already over the whole WrestleMania 8 thing because the second he heard WrestleMania 14, I could hear him running to his television, putting on the network, and queuing up the very first match of that show, which is the tag team battle royal and the big entrance with the Legion of Doom. And I'm sorry, Darren, Darren, who was their manager? This one had a happy ending. Her name was Sunny. I know you want me. Yes. I know so, you want me. Yes. Darren's already over WrestleMania 8. He's already <laughs> moved on from his bad date. He's found somebody else, and we can all be very happy. On a serious <laughs> note, though, I was really excited to rewatch this. There's some highlights. The Brett Piper match is a gem that I think is underrated by a lot of people, including people who don't think Piper was a great worker when he was in the right situation with this match, with his match against Greg Valentine at Starcade, the dog collar match, he could yeah. absolutely work and deliver the goods. Having said that, there is a lot that's wrong with the last hour of it. We've mentioned that ad nauseum. Hogan was gone. Sid was gone. Warrior would follow in very short order. Papa Shango would eventually become the godfather for good. First, mistakes. he was comma, the extreme yep. fighting machine. Machine. I skipped, I skipped a couple of steps. He was comma. <laughs> Uh, then he was the godfather in the nation. Yep. Then he was the godfather uh, bringing strippers out. Then he was the good father. And then the right to censor. To Look at that. Godfather. Well done. Yeah. So there was a lot going on there for Mr. Charles Wright. And he comes off, by the way, pretty likable in the brawl for all uh, dark side of the ring. If none of you have watched that. But kidding aside, I like this WrestleMania a lot. It's got a lot of high points. And there's a lot to talk about with the last hour that we've talked about that a lot of people have talked about i'm excited for wrestlemania 14 for different reasons than darren because there's so much that goes on in that show i got an idea for you guys let's leave tickets for bill buckner oh wait he can't bend over to them <laughs> how, about yes. how about it how about it <laughs> that was good we'll get to talk about some pete rose who's one of the great celebrities in uh, in wwe f history and um awesome guys thanks a lot ton of fun um so let's uh we'll do the homework and we'll we'll start to if you want to follow along with us folks we're going to be re-watching wrestlemania 14 for next week and then early in the week uh jason beam and uh, danny derby danny danny kovaloff are going to join we're going to recap SummerSlam 92 that was one that jason picked and i was just kind of waiting till we did wrestlemania 8 because it was perfect we might as well just do it right afterwards so uh rewatch mania uh, rewatch uh, SummerSlam 92 and then go back and rewatch um, WrestleMania 14 from 1998. Darren, Andrew, give us your cheap plugs, and then let's say goodbye. Well, but, you know, before the cheap plug, real quick, when you do yeah. SummerSlam 92, yeah. uh, tell, uh, play a game of where in the world is Hawk from LOD, 
Oh, yes. Slam 92. The dude literally goes AWOL in Europe. <laughs> um, on Twitter, at the track seven, big weekend if you follow racing. Um, we're excited for the uh, Arkansas Derby, and uh, we get to watch that virtual derby on NBC. So uh, that'll be fun as well. And then getting some good news in the racing front Churchill Downs, May 16th, starting to see yeah. some track pop back up. So. And Anita's Hopefully. condition book looks like they're going to be set for May the 15th. They, those are the when the, the races they look to be carded, and they're trying to reschedule some of their big races like the San Anita Derby, I think, for uh, early June, June 6th, something like that I, I saw. So, hey, you know what? If I, I got to mention, Darren, the tracks, some of them have done – that have been open, they've done a good job in here. So if they're if they're being taking every precaution, and you know these horses need to get out on the racetrack anyways, and they're using the gloves, they're using their masks, they're being smart, they're using social distancing. Um, I, I'm fine with them running. Just we got to make sure that we don't, you know, like I, I said this a couple times, it's the bottle of the antibiotics, right? You got to finish that bottle. Like we can't, you can't get stop too early, and then you get another relapse. So I just hope we we stay state, you know, we stay safe, we stay smart, we stay to some of the rules that it looks like Oaklawn and Gulfstream have done a really good job with. And I don't see why some of these racetracks can't open up. I, I agree with you, and I'll take it a step further. I'm actually, I actually have a 6:45 tea time on Monday morning. Nice. Yeah, they opened up. They opened up the golf courses in New Jersey. Um, there's some rules you need to follow. You got to walk the course, which. It's fine because we all need some exercise from this quarantine. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to play golf Monday morning, and you know what? What the hell, man? I mean, we'll be safe. We'll be careful about it, and, you know, we'll, we'll stay separated. And you don't have a whole lot of interaction with anybody playing golf anyway. So uh, I'm looking forward to doing something other than limited to my little lot of land here in gorgeous Staten Island, New York. Uh, for me at Andrew Champagne on Twitter and the Champagne and JD podcast. In fact, a little bit of foreshadowing here, depending on when you listen, the next episode that we're going to be taping has somebody you all know as one of the guests. That's called foreshadowing, kids. You're not going to want to miss that. Arkansas Ooh. Derby Day is going to be. Ooh. Yeah. Arkansas Derby Day is a really good program. 14 races. The last race going off after 7 o'clock Central Time in Arkansas. Two divisions of the Arkansas Derby. Some other big stakes races on tap. We're going to take a look at that. It's going to be a lot of fun. However you get involved, whoever you like, get involved. And uh, Darren, if you find anyone that is offering fixed odds wagering on Secretariat at 72, <laughs> I know at least one person that wants to bet the car on Secretariat. And just as a heads up, by the way, if you see that morning line, it adds up to 155 points. I'm just saying I don't think you're going to get some of these prices come post time. <laughs> yeah. We were close, fellas. Uh, I think this was the record so far. We're up at two hours and ten minutes. This show was only, it was not even three hours, so it was, it was under three hours, too. So we'll, we'll get there one of these days, and maybe it's uh, <laughs> and maybe it's when we talk uh, uh, Mania 14. Thanks so much, fellas. I always appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you next week. We've said this again, but this has been a, a real fun thing to look forward to, talking with you guys each and every Thursday night when we, uh, when we record these, and I usually get the show out uh, late Thursday, early Friday. So thanks again, Darren. Thanks again, Andrew. Don't go anywhere, folks. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll close things out on That's What G Said.
Just wanted to remind you about one of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast, Sarah Candle Company. Visit sarahcandles.com, C-E-R-A candles.com. Use the promo code G-I-N-O for 10% off of your entire purchase. These are all natural soy wax candle. They candles, they burn longer. They are better for you than the candles out there that have that traditional paraffin wax. Uh, I know the people from this company personally. I've grown up with them my whole life. They love candles. And the goal was to, to have an affordable candle that everyone can and enjoy use that promo code GINO my favorite is fresh roses the fresh roses scent is awesome if you're a horse racing fan they got del mar in there you ever want to know what del mar smells like but you couldn't make it out there order your candle right now from sarah candle company the website c e r a candles.com sarah candles.com promo code GINO for 10% off your purchase Thank you very much to Andrew, thank you to Darren, thank you to Tyler, thank you to Craig, all of our guests on this episode of That's What G Said Podcast. Good luck this weekend at Oaklawn Park. Um, So with no Oaklawn running, uh, we'll be focusing in a little more on Gulfstream next week, and it looks like some of these racetracks will be opening up over uh, in in the next few weeks and with some horse racing, albeit with no spectators. Thanks again, everyone. Give us a five-star rating and review if you can. Make sure to subscribe, download, rate, review, anywhere you get your podcasts. Share the show around with your friends, and have a great weekend. Joey, buddy, take it away.